Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Scott Shelton. You may notice that my voice sounds a little different today, a little clearer perhaps, like like maybe I've drank from some magical elixir which has cured me of the garble which has been plaguing me for the last year, but alas, there is another reason for the newfound clarity today. For the first time since we've been doing this podcast, Scott, we are recording from the same room as we are both home for Christmas. And that's where I'll start today. Scott, how was your Christmas? Yeah, Christmas Christmas has been good. I've, you know, got home the Friday before Christmas, as you know. I, of course, spent the first couple days obligatorily time with the parents. And then, you know, we got to spend a little time on Sunday night watching all of the spectacular, all oh, yeah. seven plus hours or whatever it was of Schmodown goodness, which of course we're going to be talking about later today. But you know, since then, just been lounging around here, seeing a lot of movies, got on Letterboxd, it's been an entire night uploading my entire year of movies into Letterboxd, you know, much to the your happiness, I, I will say. And then that obviously have, has made things a lot easier for, for me as well. And, and so for those of you who have already jumped on the bandwagon of following my letterbox, you know that I've been seeing a lot of movies. Uh, I think the last five days before this one, I saw five new movies since I've really been slamming at home here at the end of the year, trying to see all the movies I didn't see, get ready for our top 10 podcast that's coming up soon. And, and yeah, just overall having having a really great time here at home. First time being at home in a while. And like you said, first time we're getting to record together, which is really exciting. Yeah, you know, I'm excited that you're on Letterboxd. It is kind of funny, though, that, that you picked now to, to join because, you know, you mentioned our top 10 episode. We've talked about this before. We're going to have the hosts of Purely Nostalgia, uh, Clinton, Elisha, as our guests on that episode. And prior to, uh, you know, this week, uh, myself and Elisha, you know, we're, we're dedicated on Letterboxd. We've been on there for a while. We, you know, log and review every single movie. But both Clint and you... Um, were not letterbox people. Didn't have an account, you know. Ha- hadn't uh, th- really thought about signing up until now. And then within one day of each other, both you and Clint started a new letterbox account. Um, so now, it, you know, we it it's well rounded. We're gonna have uh, four letterbox users when we do our uh, our top ten. Yeah, absolutely. I'd been a little skeptical, I think, of Letterbox, or uh, you know, I knew that you'd been on it since was it the summer or maybe you know late spring. Yeah, around that time, I think. Yeah, and you had been nagging me for not not incessantly. I wouldn't say you didn't yeah, bring it up every not time. Not the right word. Come on. <laughs> you had you had mentioned it a yes. few times that yes. it would be something that I should be a part of, and then you know I finally just sat down on I can't remember if it was Tuesday or, or Wednesday night and just cranked out my entire 2018 movie catalog. Yeah. Pumped it into Letterbox and the. Honestly, the output of it is great. I sent my top, my ranked movies list of all 60 plus movies mm-hmm. that I've seen this year to a couple of friends. And they're like, whoa, that's such a cool format. Like, How'd you do that? I'm like, you know, massively good editing skills, obviously. <laughs> Not at all a preset format. Um, I'm a wizard with paint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, but Let- Letterbox is great. I'm really looking forward to tracking my, you know, not just the movies I'm seeing in theaters, but just movies I, I do watch kind of randomly during the during the year throughout that as well, because I think it's going to be really cool this time next year to look back and look, okay, yeah, here are all the movies I watched in theaters, but, you know, here's also all the other movies that I just randomly watched during the year, which I think is going to be really cool. 
Yeah, it's, you know, they've been having some bugs recently with, like, the app and the Mm -hmm. website. But other than that, it's great. I've loved, you know, using it and being able to log everything that I I see, uh, keep track of everything. It's great. So, you know, you joining Letterboxd was definitely a good Christmas gift for me as well. Um, Yeah, now you can see all my reviews instantly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I can queue up for how I'm going to, you know, parry your attacks when we have our our debates, even though we we usually agree about most movies. But yeah, but the holiday season, unfortunately, uh, is coming to a close, but there are still some big movies coming thick and fast. And today we're talking uh, about two of the biggest Christmas blockbusters. In a little bit, we'll be reviewing a Disney sequel 54 years in the making, Mary Poppins Returns. But first, it's the latest entry in the DC Comics extended universe, Aquaman. Directed by James Wan, this superhero blockbuster stars Jason Momoa in the most Jason Momoa role of all time, as the half-human, half-Atlantean warrior Arthur Curry, who is the son of a lighthouse keeper, played by Tamara Morrison, and the Atlantean queen, Atlanta, played by Nicole Kidman. After Atlanteans kidnap his mother at a young age, Arthur rejects his Atlantean heritage and instead spends his time in the surface world with full-blood humans. But when Princess Mira, played by Amber Heard, asks Arthur to save Atlantis from his brother Orm, played by Patrick Wilson, by claiming his rightful place as king, Arthur is forced to embrace the forgotten part of his lineage and return to his mother's homeworld in hopes of saving his current home from destruction. Scott, many have pointed to this film as a pivotal entry in the DCEU, which will determine whether there is still life in this universe or whether DC needs a restart. How does does this seafaring adventure fare in your eyes? Well, I think that the people who are saying that this is a a pivotal point in the DCEU probably are wrong. (laughs) I think that the pivotal moment probably came with, with Justice League in terms of needing a reboot and after Justice League... I think everyone over at you know the DC uh, entertainment arm that it, you know that, that's in charge of movies and, and and TV well just I guess just movies really I think and that's primarily headed up by Jeff Johns I believe probably after Justice League knew that they needed a reboot <laughs> and I I think that Aquaman is an, is a product of them thinking that they needed a reboot right they it's been a year since Justice League came out and I'm not sure if any movies face delays but they they definitely have canceled slash delayed a lot of movies aquaman may not be one of them but you know you think of the flash movie the batman movie there's just a lot of hiccups uh and, and maybe hiccups is even putting it lightly um massive speed bumps in the road for the dceu post you know um well really starting with batman versus superman dawn of justice but then especially after justice league also flopped relative i mean i wouldn't say objectively justice league flopped but relative to its budget and relative to its marketing budget it did flop it didn't make money for for dc and warner brothers and so aquaman i, I really view that as a product of the dc eu needing a reboot and i think that's the way they thought of it as well because scott i think that you agree that this looks very different than the way justice league looked there's lots of bright colors yeah uh, they definitely try to uh kind of what is it uh, root and branch add in a different flavor a different feel yeah. to the movie in some ways i think that you could definitely argue that it is a strong overcorrection and then at some point they'll maybe find the right mix but this unfortunately i don't think is exactly what the dceu needed it's maybe a step in the right direction but an overstep in the right direction i think that what we find here is that you find a really interesting character that has an interesting history in the in the dc universe of comics aquaman honestly a much derided character over the years for you know 
he's he's the guy who talks to fish. Like he's he he's made fun of a lot of even self referentially in this movie. In the movie, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know James Wan and, and all the people over at DC raising their arm and being like, yeah, we know that this guy's like if you really take Jason Momoa out of this character and, t- and take the the badass out of this character, there's not honestly much to be like. Oh, this is a really cool character left left to talk about. But I, and to give Jason Momoa credit here and to give James Wan and everyone credit, like what they've managed to capture with this version of Arthur Curry and Aquaman is something that people take more seriously and that people, you know, are more interested in seeing, I think. But the problem is everything that they've built around him isn't very good in this movie. And so I was reading a couple of reviews after I saw the movie, so I can't take credit for this thought myself, but it is one of the things that struck me that I didn't know how to vocalize. And then I, it, I think perfectly nailed it when I was reading some, some reviews, like I just mentioned, is that you have Aquaman in this universe, who's of you know a very particular kind of character and then everyone around him is a very different kind of character yeah, everyone exactly yeah he's this kind of you know kid from the streets is almost kind of the wrong way to put it but like he's not like the other people in atlantis which the movie spins as like he's the reason why atlantis is saved is because you know he's not like us he can he can be better than us but but really all that you're left with visually and, and you know even audibly is this character who really great like, swims against the current to, to use a, a relevant metaphor here for characters who for some weird reason talk like very shakespeareanly yeah. and, and in ways that's like really awkward at times and ultimately you get this really you know melodramatic overly dramatic plot that's centered around him saving this universe that he's never known in his life and ultimately he does it but you know, you have Jason Momoa, you have, you know, the guy from Game of Thrones, which I think a lot of people might know him best from. Of course, he's been in other things since then. But by the end of it, it's supposed to be this really cool moment when he puts on, you know, the, the king of Atlantis suit armor at the end of the film. And honestly, he just looks silly. Yeah, so for me, you know, in, in terms of how I feel about the DC EU in general, it, I mean, I, I'm as disappointed as anyone because I think that... And I think you would agree with me that DC at its best has the characters, has the storylines, has everything to go toe-to-toe with Marvel. Um, and there's no reason why they should be so far behind where Marvel and where the MCU is at this point. So I, you know, any time I go to these movies, you know, even though I've been disappointed time and time again by uh, Justice League, Man of Steel, whatever... Um, I'm rooting for these movies to be good because I know that you know deep down they're... There's a lot, uh, you know, that DC could accomplish. Um, well, they if, have really strong properties, which I think is yeah. what you're saying. Like Batman, probably the best superhero yeah. comic book um, IP that there that exists in the world, better than Spider-Man, probably. And if you look at what, like, the old animated series, what Batman the animated series, Superman the animated series, Justice League, animated yeah, series, exactly. Right? These those animated series paved the way for a lot of what we see in the superhero genre today, whether it's Marvel or DC. I mean, I think especially with Batman, you, you know, the, that animated series paved the way for the darker feel that the Christopher Nolan Batman movies had. Um, so, you know, there is good stuff in this, In the, if you go back in the DC universe, but they've really gotten away from that. Um, I think most people would agree with this recent extended universe. But, you know, going into this movie, I, I was cautiously optimistic um i thought the trailers were encouraging you know people were saying you know this is fun um you know i I had a good time it doesn't take itself too seriously which you know has been my problem with the dceu for the most part is that it takes Mm -hmm. itself way too seriously and they just don't have the strong enough scripts 
to pull that off like you know Christopher Nolan was able to pull off with the Batman movies. Um, it, it takes a lot for us to you know sort of step back and look at these superhero universes and take them seriously. And I, you know I don't think that the DCEU has been able to accomplish that. You know, with the exception of Wonder Woman, which I think did strike the right tone between, uh, you know, being serious and, and, you know, having fun in the way that the Marvel uh, movies have have managed to accomplish. Um, But I have to say, I agree with you that this movie does not succeed. Um, But I think, I don't know that I would say it's an overcorrection. As a matter of fact, I think that the movie basically falls prey to all of what all what has plagued all of the other um movies in the dceu which is that it still takes itself too seriously and the content oh, really i think it doesn't take itself seriously enough no so for me i mean for me you have to look at this in the context of aquaman because of what you're talking about because of so because so many people like by design don't take this character seriously going into the movie i think that the movie need to lean into that more heavily and i think you're right when you say that that, uh, you know, Jason Momoa and Aquaman is different from all of the characters around him. And I think that that's reflected in his performances versus all of his performance versus all of the other performances, because really Jason Momoa and with the, you know, a little bit later in the movie, Amber Heard, I think you could say this too, seems to be the only one who's having any fun whatsoever in this movie. I mean, he's the one who's cracking wise. He's the one who's, you know, looking really cool while, you know, these classic rock songs, which, you know, that's what I wanted more of. Um, Honestly, like, I just wanted this movie to be cheesy and over the top and to own it. And I don't think that it did that enough. Instead, we have this, you know, Patrick Wilson, I think, strikes completely the wrong tone. I think he's way too serious, way too severe. And there's all of this mythology around Atlantis that, frankly, I just didn't care about. I just wanted this to be a dumb fun movie and you know there there is a stretch of the movie of about 20 or 25 minutes where they're on some sort of mediterranean island i'm not sure whether it it's explicitly said in the movie where aquaman arthur curry and mira have have uh, jumped out of a plane that you know they find themselves in this island that was my favorite part of the movie because well, that was the sahara desert <laughs> Yeah, but they, well, they were they jumped out of a plane into the desert, but then yeah. they end up on an island and there's it's Sicily. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that was my favorite part of the movie because I felt like they were actually having fun. Like, you know, you have this this hilarious moment of them walking out of the sea while this pitbull song, which samples Africa by Toto, like yeah. has the chorus uh, has the same chorus as Africa is playing. I was like, this is what I want from this movie. Like. I want this movie to just be yeah. ridiculous and over the top. Yeah. And but then after this stretch of the movie where you know it's fun like they're they're running around they're looking for clues to the secret of, you know, this former king of Atlantis, Atland, or, you know, trying to find his body and all this stuff. Uh, and you know, there's all the, there's this sort of romantic, you know, playfulness between uh, Mira and, and Arthur. Like that was what I wanted from this movie, but then after that stretch of the movie, we go right back into this like overly grim, overly serious mm-hmm. um, world and, you know, plot about, you know, who has a, a claim to the throne of, of Atlantis. I'm like, who cares? Like, I just want to see some cool stuff. And unfortunately, there wasn't enough of that in the movie. And I think that Jason Momoa deserved better because, you know, he's the one who, as I said, he's the one who I think is playing the movie the right way in terms of the tone. But because no one else is playing it that way, it stands out and just seems really awkward. 
when really I think we should be looking at it from the other way and say, well, shouldn't all of these other people, shouldn't Patrick Wilson and Willem, De- Willem Dafoe and all of these other very capable actors in the movie, uh, you know, have adopted the same tone as him? Why, why is there such unevenness? And, and that's for me why the movie didn't succeed. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. And, and I think this... Sorry, I think this bolsters my claim that it doesn't that this is doesn't fall to the victim to the same uh, Maybe problems I was just of, not of other movies. Yeah. Well, no, because I think that I think the previous DCEU movies, to a fault, like thinking Batman vs Superman, which I know that you haven't seen, uh, and Justice League and Man of Steel before it falls victim to the fact that it knows exactly what it is, but the problem is what it, it like what it is isn't that appealing mm-hmm. to people. I think the 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 darker tone that it taking itself too seriously is something that. It just didn't. It just didn't vibe with people, especially when you juxtapose it to the, you know, the the tone of the of a lot of the MCU movies that were coming out in that time period, right? Whereas now, I think Aquaman doesn't know what it wants to be, or it knows what what it's what the series history has been. It knows where it maybe needs to go, mm-hmm. and somehow gets stuck in the. It gets stuck being neither, right? And you have these flashes to your point of what you want to see from Aquaman and it has flashes of maybe what some other people want to see from Aquaman. Maybe some people who do like Man of Steel or do like Batman versus Superman or do like Justice League. And the problem is it's not it's not satisfying to anyone because it's not actually striking a balance. What it's doing is it's just it's just giving it's giving you something in one part of the movie and something else in another part of the movie and never really never really actually mingling the two together and mixing the two together in a balance that is appealing to a wider audience. And so in that sense, that's why I kind of think it's a, it's an it's an over. I, I think you're right. I think saying it's an overcorrection maybe doesn't perfectly capture exactly what it is because it's an overcorrection in terms of what maybe the character that Aquaman is playing, but it's you know a lack of correction a lot of the times when when you think about the Atlanteans and, and the people under the sea, um, so so to speak. And and you're right. Amber Heard maybe lightens up over the course of the film. Um, Jason Momoa, of course, is is kind of consistent throughout, although you do see development. But you're right; like this is a movie that is fun, that is is fun at times. Like you know, e- even though it's you know inexplicable why they're able to jump out of a plane into the desert and yeah. be okay, there's literally no explanation as to why they're able to do that. There's a lot of things that aren't explained <laughs> um, in terms of like the capabilities of these characters. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand the underwater portion, but I don't, un- well, I don't, yeah. I don't get why they'd be able to jump out of a plane and be okay yeah just not is whatever cool but you know but then there are moments that are like your big action superhero set pieces that are are done well i think that you know i've I've seen that some people didn't quite like didn't like the scene as much but i really like the island scene from sicily where you have black manta chasing aquaman and 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 amber heard you know through the streets and jumping i think there's an excessive use of slow motion which is very unnecessary uh i mean that that's not the first time we've seen that in a movie this year no 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 and and it was a, a little bit uh, not more than a little bit. It was to a fault at some points, but but the idea that that's the kind of scene that they're setting up, as opposed to like some of the action sequences in Man of Steel, which like are just grandiose, but like not in a ooh kind of way. Like yeah. it, it doesn't ooh and awe you in Man of Steel, or it doesn't ooh and awe you in Justice League, even because it's really just like because the tone of the movie is so hyper serious, you don't really have fun in the mo- in the scenes where you're supposed to be having fun. So maybe you're right. Maybe to your point, it's it's a step in the right direction and and not there yet because it needs to still figure out how to balance those two tones because there are flashes of what the DCEU maybe can be it, it, with a little bit more work and a little bit more refinement and you, you know th- I think that a lot of this movie has been marketed as a soft reboot. They're not retconning any of the plot or any of the the story that's happened. But like the reality is, we're not going to see Henry Cavill as Superman again. Yeah. You know, we may not see Ben Affleck as Batman again. 
And at the end of the day, like, I mean, they should get rid of Ezra Miller as the as the Flash, in my opinion. I think everyone agrees on that. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, if if they soft rebooted this universe with Jason Momoa and Gal Gadot as the two, you know, surviving characters from the Justice League, I mean, maybe actually I'm forgetting right now who plays Cyborg, but you know, maybe I yeah, didn't, didn't feel, see much from him in Justice League. Yeah, so. did, didn't feel one way or the other about him. But you know, if, if this is the soft reboot, if this is the start, you know, again, maybe I'll give the DCEU one more pass. Uh, on this, we'll see what Shazam is like in April of this year before Infinity War comes out because there is another DCE movie on the books, and then of course Wonder Woman 1984 coming later in the year. So there's there are things to look forward to, especially uh, a known property that we are pleased with that we haven't really satisfied with in the past getting a sequel. But again, this is disappointing, and I know that we've kind of dwelled a long time at a high level. I don't know if we want to dig down into any of the more specifics here. Uh, but anything else you want to add at the at the high level here? Yeah, before we get to the you know the performances and things, I, I mean, I, I just I'll just add that I agree with you. I think that in terms of when you're describing the tone of the movie, I think that they're clearly going for a, you know that MCU style tone where oh you know it's serious and the stakes are high, but also you're having a good time and there's jokes and it's funny and you really like the characters. But rather than weaving the two you know things throughout, it's like. Here's here's a fun scene, and then here's a serious scene. Yeah. They don't. Th- there's never really a moment where the two things come together in a cohesive way, like it does in so many of the Marvel movies. And I think, you know, maybe they have the right idea in mind, but the execution of it, uh, you know, just doesn't work. And again, I think a lot of it comes back to the script. You know, you talk about people not wanting, you know, a a serious, um, you know superhero movie that that takes itself really seriously you know when, when we have the marvel universe which has a very you know familiar and, and particular tone to it i think that's right but i also think that you can still pull it off if you have the right script uh i mean christopher nolan showed it with his with his batman movies maybe we'll get that with the joker movie that's coming up in, in 2019 with joaquin phoenix is that part of the dceu though no but i'm saying yeah. maybe this is an example of a you know a superhero movie that takes itself seriously but has a good script, and so, you know, people can respond to it. The scripts just haven't been good enough, and I definitely think that that's true of Aquaman. Like, there were some lines in this movie which were howlers, for lack of a better word. Oh, um, yeah, no, terrible. But, yeah, but let's get into the... Well, I, I, and just to say to your point, yeah. like, I think that one thing that the MCU does in one of my complaints, although I think most people like it, is that sometimes it's so dedicated to its not taking not making you feel too serious about everything that's happening. Of course, Infinity War may be a different, mm-hmm. a different, a different variable there. But I do think that the key takeaway that a lot of people have from the MCU is that you have to like crack jokes in serious moments. And I don't think that you no. have to do that to accomplish something meaningful. And I felt that a lot of times, and this is kind of where I felt like an overcorrect, <laughs> this is a point where I felt like Aquaman maybe overcorrected a little bit, was that I felt like it felt like it needed to crack a joke in serious moments to alleviate tension. Yeah. But again, that's just to me that never works, right? Like I, a movie can be serious. The problem is that, and maybe they just don't understand this still. But like the problem with some of the other movies is that it's not that it was because they were hyper serious. It's that like the consistency which was it serious, the the consistency which it never relieved any tension. Yeah. But I mean, relieving the tension in the wrong moments is not the solution to that. And that's where I felt like it maybe overcorrected, and it felt like it needed to land jokes when it didn't need to. Like. I mean, I mean that's a huge spoiler for the movie, but like, there's a point in the movie where you have this very serious moment that is a huge revelation 
in the movie and should is something that should be very serious. And then you get this like random joke cracked like right at the end of it. I'm like, well, that wasn't necessary. <laughs> yeah. I didn't need that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And I'll also just add as as a caveat that I think that this movie has the most scenes that we've seen in a movie this year where there's a serious conversation going on and then that is abruptly punctuated when a wall explodes. It happens at least three times in this movie. Uh, so much so that when the third time it happens, I was like, are you kidding me right now? Like, are they intentionally doing this, like, to make it humorous? The fact that, like, there are m- multiple times in this movie where it's like, oh, we're having this serious conversation. And all of a sudden, when you least expect it, the wall explodes and a, and a fight scene starts. It's, it's just kind of ridiculous. But let's get into the performances now. We've talked a little bit about Jason Momoa and maybe why he succeeds or doesn't succeed in his role as Aquaman. I think, you know, a lot of people were are, were optimistic about him playing Aquaman because just because of his physical appearance. I mean, he looks like Aquaman. Like, he looks like the person you would want to play Aquaman. Well, your, your serious version of Aquaman. Yeah, your it, joke right, Aquaman. exactly. Your, your serious version um, where people are actually going to be, you know, scared of this guy. Yeah. Um, so what did you think about his performance in general? No, I thought it was good. Honestly... Uh, again, I've already noted how different not only his performance, but his character felt from everyone else in the film, not necessarily in a positive way. I mean, I understand this character is supposed to be different. It's the point, but it, it's almost too much so. But Jason Momoa's performance as Aquaman, like, it, it felt right to me. It felt like what I would have wanted, to, to your point exactly, what I would have wanted out of an Aquaman that I would, wanted the DCEU to market in a serious manner, not to be a joke. And I got that, right? Like, I think that although... I'm not sure that ultimately he's the person that I want headlining the DCEU. One, because I, I'm still not 100% sure how I feel about that character being, you know, the lead property in a, in a DCEU. And I don't think that they're trying to be. But at the end of the day, like, you know, if he gets another standalone movie, I think that's fine. Because it's everything else that, that around him that needs to be figured out. Because Jason Momoa, he, he nails, I think, the serious nature of Aquaman that you that you want for people to take him seriously but you know he's also goofy enough to not let to not make you feel like again you know there's no there's no there's never an opportunity to relieve some tension in the movie that being said I don't think that they always utilize in this movie his goofiness in the right way there are moments where it works and there are moments where it doesn't again to your point that you've already mentioned some of that has to do with the script which is really bad at times. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, Jason Momoa, I think, is doing the best that he can. I think he did the best with what he was given in Justice League as well. And although I don't think this is a performance I'm going to remember for how good it was, I'm not going to remember it for how bad it was either, which, you know, there are some other points in this movie where I'm like, ooh, that's really bad. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a lot of fun in this role, which is both a blessing and a curse in this movie, uh, just because of, you know, as I've said, the way that they treat the other characters, it, it causes some weird conversations, you know, kind of to your point about how these characters are speaking almost Shakespearean verse. And then you have Jason Momoa, who's just basically talking like me or you. like, And, and you know, maybe that's supposed to be like, oh, here's the human side of him. You know, here's, um, you know, the side of him that has spent most of his time on Earth or, you know, in the surface world. Um, and, and this is how he's, he's learned to talk. But still, it just comes off as really weird at times. Um, and I think, you know, this performance would have looked a lot better in a better movie, in a movie, you know, again, that strikes the right tone. Uh, but, I mean, again, I think he, in terms of performances, he's he's the best in this movie. Um, 
I think he knows what this character should be. Um, it's just unfortunate that the movie doesn't, uh, you know, execute on uh, the fact that it has a strong character at its heart. And again, I agree with you. I don't think that he needs to be the person headlining the DCEU. Um, but I think in terms, he could be a good, you know, Thor. A lot of people have compared this to Thor, uh, you know, an underwater version of Thor. Uh, I think he could be a good Thor-like character. I mean, certainly we wouldn't say that Thor is the person who headlines the MCU, but he's a fun character. And they have, over the course of three individual movies and all the Avengers movies, they found a great way to make this character, oh, also, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a severe you know, God in, in the Norse world, but also I am funny. Um, and I think that's what this character um, is going for here. But again, because of the movie, it just feels very uneven. Well, if they can make Aquaman, if they can make the third Aquaman movie as good as the Thor third Ragnarok, Thor movie, yeah. I'm here for it. Because Thor Ragnarok, going into that movie, I wouldn't have had my expectations mm. too high based on the first two Thor uh, standalone movies. But Thor Ragnarok, one of the best movies in the MCU. And, you know, if if it takes a little bit of work to get Aquaman there, I'm fine with it. Because you're right. Like, I can see I can see the positives, right? And, and you know, if we're comparing it to Thor, Thor wasn't my problem in, you know, the Thor or Thor the Dark World. Mm-hmm. And Aquaman, to be fair, isn't my problem here. I have my, my problems lie mostly elsewhere. And, and so I think that's not a bad comparison. The only problem is that, like, if, if this is one of the better... Uh, DCEU uh, movies, you know, granted, there aren't that many of them right now. But if this is one of the better ones, unfortunately, Thor, Thor is one of the worst ones. Yeah. And Thor The Dark World, its follow-up, may be the worst one. Mm-hmm. And so that, that doesn't bode well for the DCEU still. Yeah, uh, that that's fair. I just think in terms of the role that this character can play, yeah. uh, you know, maybe Thor is a good comparison point. But let's also talk about, you know, there are a lot of big actors in this movie, a lot of characters... Yeah. Um, at play. I think you would have to say that the other major character um, is Amber Heard's Princess Mira. Um, What did you think about her performance as sort of both a love interest, but also sort of a sidekick for Aquaman in this movie? Yeah, I I think I've heard some people comparing her to like um, Black Widow from... From from the MCU, I don't really understand that. that seems a little lazy. It, yeah. Well, it seems lazy because I feel like if you're going to really make that comparison, it's going to be Wonder Woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's Black Widow, but uh, it, it does feel a little bit lazy. I think it's probably the red hair. Um, <laughs> but I, I think and it's very red. Yeah, if you've seen the trailers, yeah, you know. it's a, it's what water does to people. I like it though; it pops on the screen for sure. <laughs> yeah, and her and her, you know, brilliant green outfit as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that this is this is a case in point of. A character that you get very early on, you know, outside the intro sequence where you do get Nicole Kidman's Atlanta uh, as the first kind of Atlantean that you see. But then you get Mira next as kind of the the next major character that you see in, you know, with, uh, on, on land in the real world. And what you get from that is a very quick tonal shift from what you're getting from Aquaman. And this doesn't necessarily... Spe- I'm going to pivot to Amber Heard's role in a moment, mm-hmm. but I think it's really striking as like, that is the person that you get first off because it immediately sets the tone of like, all right, I'm not sure that I can take Atlanta seriously. Meanwhile, you, when you actually go visit Atlantis, everyone takes themselves really seriously. Everybody looks normal compared to her. Yeah. It's I mean, I get, okay, she's a princess, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's clear what they're trying to do with her. I mean, maybe this is cynical, but I think it's clear that they're trying, I mean, and I guess I don't blame them, although I don't think it's good filmmaking. They're trying to, like, hypersexualize 
Amber Heard's character, like, obviously the suit, very form-fitting. I mean, she's a very attractive actress, so yeah. it explains why. But that being said, it's I don't find that to be, like, expert filmmaking. Amber Heard is kind of... I find her, you know, from a starting point to be shoehorned into this character that is, you know, this sort of love interest of both the protagonist and the antagonist and the villain, of, yeah. of, of the movie. And I never... Like, it's a love triangle, sure, but it's, like, not one that gets me... It isn't particularly compelling to me. And so I find it really disappointing that she's been shoehorned into this role because I think she is a good actress. She's an actress that isn't in that many movies I think that, that many people see these days. It's been a few years since I think she's been in a big blockbuster, um, unless I'm forgetting one recently. But it, it's disappointing to me that this is the role she's in. And I think that she does a decent job. And, and when you actually start to get a character that's more than one-dimensional towards the end of the film, so going back to something that you mentioned at the beginning of of our of, of this section talking about Aquaman, I think that you do see how much or how far her performance and her acting ability can take this character. The problem is at the beginning, what you get is this person who's pissed at Atlantis for and, and pissed at, at you know um, or Marius Patrick Wilson's character, who's uh, Ocean Master in the comics, but here is trying to take over Atlantis and his hat and Arthur Curry's half brother. And then, you know, she's mad at him because he's trying to basically rule the ocean and start a war with the land. And <laughs> she's mad at Jason Momoa because he, he he's not from Atlantis, so doesn't really know what he's doing down yeah. there. And, and ultimately, she's this person who's, like, hyper-frustrated at the beginning of the film because nothing seems to be going her way. And the people that she needs to, like, be there for her aren't there for her because either, one, they can't be, or two, it's too complicated. And, and I find that... The role is very limiting for her in the first part of the film. And, and I think finally when you see her start stepping out of that one-dimensional box that she's in is, is towards the end of the film, kind of after Sicily, out, you know, in the, in the third act of the movie, you know, maybe even as late as when they go into the trench. I think those are moments, are, I mean, the trench, I guess, is right after Sicily, so it's not like that's that much after. But, you know, on the boat as they go to the trench is kind of that moment where I feel like her character starts to change for me a little bit. But... I don't know still. It's like not the it's, mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to separate the role uh from the character at this point because it's I just found it to be really limiting. And there are moments towards the end where it flashes, you know, when she's interacting uh with some characters toward the end that I'm again kind of avoiding to avoid spoilers here. But yeah, I, I don't know if you if you feel differently, but I think Amber Heard was probably fine in this movie, but it was so hard to tell because the, the character that they wrote for her wasn't the best. Yeah, I mean, I think she has some good scenes with Jason Momoa when they're playing off each other, you know, mostly in those island scenes. But but their chemistry is also, like, not that great, yeah, in, my, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's... I mean, and I think that comes from, the you know, what you're talking about. There's no substance to this Mira character whatsoever. I mean, there's obviously some sort of a backstory there. I mean, her father, right, we learn is... Dolph is the Dolph Lundgren character, yeah. yeah. Um, but His there's, second movie in a month. There's really no sort of payoff on that whatsoever. I mean, there's no, only like one scene where they're really interacting with each other. So we don't know enough about this character um, at all. Uh, and what you learn about the world from her character is like, honestly, super disappointing. Yeah. Not 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 only just from a like, okay, like, you know, if basically if you betray your... Like, there's no loyalty whatsoever to, like, yeah. people in this Atlantis world. And, like, the ultimate price is paid for, like, every single, you know, kind of act of betrayal, right? So, like, what you learn from her is, like, I can never go back from Atlantis because I helped you. I'm like, okay, well, like, why did you help him then? Yeah. <laughs> then- yeah, that, that, that's a good point. I think there's no, there's no real reason why they develop such a fast relationship given yeah. given that 
Amber Heard is, I mean, given that Mira is engaged to, you know, his brother, engaged to Orm. Um, and okay, maybe she hates Orm, but we don't really understand why she takes to Arthur so quickly. Uh, and I, I think it's just not enough to say, oh, this character, you know, can fight alongside Arthur Curry and, and be his equal for the most part in terms of, you know, fighting action ability. Like, that's not enough to give this character depth. depth. We need more there. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think, you know, she came off as a pretty standard love interest character when there should have been a lot more yeah. to her. Um, and the fact that, and, and I mean, maybe I, this might be a step too far. And so, like, disagree with me if you want to. But, like, the fact, I think that they try to redeem the character by giving her this, like, strong fighting ability like she can right, she can yeah. fend for herself but that doesn't make her like a that doesn't give her depth that's kind of what i was getting at yeah, yeah. um just because right. she can defend herself doesn't mean she's an interesting love interest yeah exactly um okay let's briefly talk now about some of the other cast members i mean i think i've kind of said what i think on on most of them um i think that they're kind of striking the wrong tone pretty much in general but you know we have a, a good cast here i mean patrick, ivan drago under the sea yes patrick wilson <laughs> dolph lundgren the great willem dafoe unfortunately uh i i wanted you know because i love willem dafoe i wanted to see a lot more from him i think he, he's he's uh cabined by the movie's uh, flaws unfortunately um but yeah it's it's a strong cast uh i what did you think were there anyone was there anyone in the supporting cast who stood out for you or or did you feel kind of like me that most of them were pretty wasted Honestly, the only the only character in this movie who sticks out, even including Willem Dafoe here, like I don't think his character sticks out um, at at all, or his character sticks out for the wrong reasons. I don't understand his character whatsoever. Um, his performance is, is is good. I expect that from Willem Dafoe, but uh, his character isn't that. But is is Nicole Kidman? I, you know, there is a there's the opening scene which Scott. You know, we haven't talked about this yet, but the thing that I despise most and it was, about it's every... so bad too I, t- I told you this before you saw it I know it, right? and I was like wow it was not I, you told it's me about so it it's so unnecessary like, I was like ex- not expecting how bad it actually is the voiceover narration is what, what frustrates me the most so yeah so t- it, there's a voiceover narration at the beginning and the end of this film my main critique is with the beginning of the film it is literally it adds absolutely yeah. nothing whatsoever to the opening scene because the opening scene like if, if you just like put noise canceling headphones on the opening scene is really good yeah like if you could just get Jason Moa to not talk, and it's it's like overly loquacious, like there he he's talking in a more formal way that he doesn't talk in for any of the yep. rest of the movie, and it just seems so weird. Like it's like you're reading a novel, which you're not. Yeah, and, and like I said, it, it basically just narrates everything that you can see yeah. right in front of you, and it's so dumb. It's so dumb. It's so bad. But anyway, so but Nicole Kidman's performance stuck out. Um, and in that opening sequence, and then you know a couple other flashback sequences over the course of the film, and then um, kind of entering a little bit more spoilery territory here for those of you who, for some reason, are still listening to this review, uh, even though we've been absolutely taking a crap on it for most of the time here. <laughs> uh, I think Nicole Kidman's actually really great at the end of this film when she comes back, when you know she is discovered in the Earth's core or the 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 Forgotten Sea or the, the, I don't even remember what it's called, the Hidden Sea, something like that, where, you know, they are going there to retrieve the Trident of Atlan, uh, which is the weapon they need to, to defeat Orm, the Ocean Master. Yeah. Um, and they, That's what they, more than I could have told you. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm deep in the lore, man. I'm big, <laughs> I'm a big lore guy. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they, well, they get to this, so Mira and, and, and Arthur, Aquaman, get to, you know, this island through the trench, um, and they find not only the trident there eventually, but they also find Nicole Kidman's Atlanta, Arthur's mother, 
Um, and I think that she has a couple of really nice scenes uh, there towards the end of the film, both with Aquaman and with Mira, who she seems like she knows really well. Yeah. Uh, th- one of the big question marks I think is in this movie for me is actually like how long she lived after she went back down to Atlantis. So like, I mean, she seems to know a lot of the characters, but if she were instantly exiled and, and well perceived dead right after she went back like 20 years before, then it, it doesn't really make much sense why she knew Mira. But apparently they knew each other. The, and I thought their their chemistry was better than Amira's chemistry with Aquaman, in my <laughs> opinion, which is not saying much, I guess. But uh, yeah, so that's the one performance that stuck out to me. I did like Black Manta as, an, as a character, not in terms of, you know, him being more than one-dimensional, but just like... Well, and they're obviously setting him up for a sequel, too, because there's, like, yeah. no payoff whatsoever to his storyline. Like, right. so, we get it set up at the beginning, and then it's like, he's sort of just this random character who's just there for yeah. the rest of the well, movie. Well, okay, so, and to, and to clarify what I was saying, he is super one-dimensional. He's, yeah. like, as one-dimensional as a villain can get. That being said, like, I, I liked his... I mean, maybe it's just because it's my favorite scene, but, like, them fighting through the city of Sicily is, like, such a cool... Okay, yeah. actually, maybe that's not my favorite scene. I'm backtracking on that. But I liked that sequence a lot, and I liked the fact that he can shoot lasers out of his eyes. You know, just getting a little X-Men Scott Summers flavor into yeah. that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm excited for that. I liked the, the opening sequence in the submarine was also... Uh, uh, and one of the better ones, which, again, isn't saying much for this movie. But, you know, I wouldn't say his performance stuck out, but Nicole Kidman's did. Yeah, I mean, I think Nicole Kidman is a great actress. I think she's always going to elevate, you know, any material that she she's a part of. Um, and I think I also liked Tamir Morrison playing uh, playing his playing the father. Um, and there's that scene at the end where you know we find out that that he walks to the end of the dock every single day, you know, hoping that she'll come back, hoping that he'll see her, and. Finally, at the end, we get the payoff, you know, where she does come back. And I was I was sitting there like, dadgummit, because I was so, I was mad at this movie at that point. I was like, how are you going to give me a solid emotional payoff in this movie, which does not earn the payoff, but yet somehow the payoff is still pretty satisfying, like when they, well, when they actually you, do get Well, until the voiceover happens. Well, until the, of course, <laughs> yeah. until the voiceover happens. But I was, I was like, it honestly made me even more angry. I was like, how... This movie should have been better. Like, here's a here's a good scene. Like, here's a good emotional payoff in this movie when they finally do get back together. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the supporting cast kind of uh, is very one note, uh, unfortunately. And and I don't think it, and I want to be really clear. Like, I don't think it's because of the acting. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of these actors. I've enjoyed all of them in other films. Which says everything you need to know about this movie. Pretty much, yeah. Um, okay, so before we get to our wrap-up, let's just briefly talk about maybe in tandem the plot, but also you know where this movie stands in the DCEU. I mean, I think we've been pretty clear about where we think it stacks up quality-wise, but you know, if you want to do a little ranking of the DCEU movies, you, can, you could feel free to do that as well. Oh, gosh. Uh, but is there anything more you want to add about Aquaman yeah. at a high level? At a high level, yes, because I think the CG is great in this movie. Um, This is another movie in December that I've seen where the CG is much better than anything else in the movie, Mortal Engines being the first one. Uh, This movie, animation not as good as Mortal Engines, but the fact that so many scenes are shot here underwater, uh, really cool. There are some weird things that I didn't like about a lot of the scenes being shot underwater, um, which aren't related to the CGI, but I thought... A lot of the sea creatures, there's a particular scene um, that I've already kind of mentioned a couple times, but in the trench where they're like trying to essentially race through the trench and get to the other side. Uh, That's a really cool scene, not just in terms of 
the CGI, but also the kind of, well, cinematography, as much as that it would count for that scene. I don't know if it's all computer generated, if it's technically cinematography or not. But um, yeah, no, that that's one of the things that stuck out that we hadn't talked about yet. The plot, which we haven't talked about yet, is not good, so not worth talking about. <laughs> um, movie's a little long. Little it's, long, it's little long very long. It's very long. I can't believe I haven't even mentioned that yet, but it's like two hours, 23 minutes, and... It's almost as long as Infinity War. I checked out at, at various points throughout the movie. So. Infinity War was two hours and 31 minutes. But Infinity War was... It kept you gripped was the good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For lack of a better word. Yeah, so I don't know if there's too much else that I have to add. I mean, okay, so I, I kind of just like dismissed the plot, but I can maybe get a little bit more detail here. I think that the plot is... You know, it, it's, again, like, I don't understand a lot of the motivations of any of these people. Like, I don't understand the backstories for some of them. And it's not because they didn't try to explain them. It's just that I literally did Like, for example, I don't understand why Volko, uh, like, he swore allegiance to, you know, Atlanta at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Apparently, you know, when she returned to Atlantis and, and swore allegiance to her over the king at that point. Right? So... So he secretly is going to the land and teaching Arthur Curry how to fight. But then, like... There, it's weird because you're getting these flashback sequences with Willem Dafoe, with the other versions of Aquaman, but at the same time, you don't get the sense from the from like the the current timeline that any of that's actually happened before. It's very strange yeah. to me. Uh, so I don't understand like a lot of the black stars. Uh, I don't understand than, the motivations. Other than like when they first meet in the current timeline, you know, there's obviously familiarity there. They obviously know each other. Other than that. You're right. Like, there's not, and well, and also, so we do have one moment in that f- fight between Orm and and Arthur at the end, where he does like the thing with the trident that he was taught by Willem Dafoe. So that is sort of one payoff, I guess. But I mean, but that that's the payoff. But I'm saying, like, I don't. You can't just insert sequences of like, oh, they knew each other. This is how he learned yeah, this thing, yeah. and like, expect it to be okay because, like, yes, when you when he goes to Atlantis for the first time with Mira and meets Mira and Willem Dafoe in this like secret hideout. Right, like I don't understand why it's Mira going getting him and not Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Why do they need to go to Atlantis at all to have this conversation? Uh-huh. I, I just I think that there's a lot of I mean there are a lot of holes and maybe are a lot at least a lot of question marks I don't fully understand. I mean that's just an example of one of them. And speaking of those flashback sequences, can we talk about how bad the teenage actor who played teenage Arthur Curry was in that one scene? Holy cow, awful! But uh, I but, think that's uh, Otis Donji. Or I don't know which one's which. There's Sorry, Otis. and Kakoa Kakamona. Sorry, guys. Uh, yeah. Not, not good. Um, well, the good news is that there's very... So the Wikipedia page says that a younger Arthur Curry is portrayed by various actors, including an uncredited infant. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow. that's, that's steel right there. You got to credit that infant. That's, yeah, I know. That's unfortunate for that infant. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really have too much more to add. I think in terms of where this stacks up in the DCEU, it's definitely below Wonder Woman. Um, I think for me, I mean... It's. I probably liked it a little bit more than Man of Steel. I mean, I, I Man of Steel is the worst to me, and and so many people actually like Man of Steel that it. Is it the highest on Rotten Tomatoes besides Wonder Woman? Probably, yeah. But Justice League was was mad. I mean, it, it's hard for me to to compare these movies. I think they're all pretty below average, except with the exception of Wonder Woman. And even you know, here's what I'll say too, just in general. I don't think Wonder Woman is like an amazing movie. I think it just stands out because yeah. we've so talked many, about this before. Like, like I think the ending before. of Wonder Woman is not that great. Um, it, it's a good movie. It is a solid superhero movie. Like I would put it, it, but if it was in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I would probably put it like it'd be average, middle, middle of the road. Yeah, yeah. 
but because everything else is so disappointing, like everyone was like, "Oh my gosh, yes, when well, Wonder so, Woman so, came out." I think there are plenty. To, to, I mean, we've talked about this off air before because I think I was talking about this the other day, where I'm like, I I think my I think Wonder Woman is over is an overrated movie. Yeah, I think that it's I overrated agree. because the movies around it just frankly aren't very good. Yeah, and I think that there are plenty of reasons to get very excited about Wonder Woman. I think. You know, Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot yeah, are, like, that, I mean, both amazing. Like, it's so awesome that Patty Jenkins directed this movie and that it did so well and that it was a good movie. It just was, it wasn't as, it wasn't as great, I think, as yeah. everyone was saying. Uh, it was an accomplishment and it was a, a milestone, I think, for the genre, but it wasn't as great a movie, just a, objectively, in my opinion, as people said. No, I, I completely agree. Again, like I said, it, it, it's a middle-tier Mar- Marvel movie for me. Um, okay, so with that, why don't we move into our wrap-up phase for Aquaman. Um, what was your favorite scene or moment from this film? Yeah, so there are two. I've kind of mentioned them both already, but I think my favorite is definitely going to be the, the trench sequence where mm-hmm. you have them. There's this one particular shot that I really love that is, you know, complete darkness, and it's, like, from far away, and they're just, like, shooting downward with, like, their with their flare, and you see this, the whole, all of the... Uh, sea creatures following them just a really and well not even just following them but like literally just around them yeah. uh, and i thought that was a cool shot in terms of actual scenes i think that the, the the one i've already mentioned on sicily where you know they're fighting black manta and a couple of the other atlantean warriors is is a cool sequence although you know in spite of the slow motion usage of that of that sequence but yeah those are probably the the main scenes that i'm thinking of i'll point to a small moment because I, I guess i've sort of talked about on a high level some of the big scenes that i liked but there's a moment during the Sicily sequence where, and, and my memory is failing me as to what exactly it is, but there's some sort of object, heavy object, that's about to fall on it's a, bell. a child. A bell, that's right, at, 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 on a child at one point. And Aquaman just comes out of nowhere and like elbows it into, into this door. Like, takes him no effort whatsoever. And it was like, awesome. And I probably th- killed someone inside that house instead of the boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah true. So, I mean, some of the, some of like the hand-to-hand combat scenes involving Aquaman are, are pretty satisfying, I won't lie. Like there there's a lot of uh you know fun that they have with Aquaman's like sheer brute strength, but not enough, not enough fun in my opinion. Yes. Alright, let's put a number on it. Out of ten, what would you give Aquaman? Five point eight. Yeah, my number's probably gonna sound a little harsh. Um probably but <laughs> it's disappointing. I mean I, I I can't lie, I can't give this movie a bolt above a five because I don't like think it's even average. I mean, it's below average. So I'm going with a 4.0. I, I, unfortunately, um, I was very disappointed um, by this movie. I think I think it uh, it belongs in the DCEU, but that's probably not a good thing. Um, yeah, I guess to, to vocalize some of the things that I think are a little bit more redeeming about it, since I think we were mostly pretty negative on this, and maybe yeah. some of our listeners are surprised by how high the score I'm giving it. I do think that Jason Momoa is really good. I think James Wan, an incredible act, like action director yeah i think he does a really great mm-hmm. job with the action sequences to your point i think nicole kidman is a redeeming quality of this movie and because she is a she's an integral part of the movie though she doesn't have much screen time i give it some credit for that i think that's probably one of the best written characters uh in the in the movie and amber heard is better by the end of the film again still mostly negative still the script isn't very good um I like the, the score. The score is pretty good. The score is good, and the CGI again. I on internet, the CGI is really good, and yeah. that and that, go, that does, and that means a lot. I think for superhero movies, I think it's better than even some of Marvel's CGI. Definitely looks a lot better than the Gungan world from Phantom Menace, which I mean, is granted, what I kept seven, thinking of. We are yeah. like nineteen years removed yeah. from that now, but uh, the pod I, racing sequence still holds up, though. 
But, you know, I gave... This movie's better than than Mortal Engines. Um, and I gave that movie a 4.7 for how the high quality of its visuals. And, yeah. And, and also some of, some of the, you know, more minor parts of that film. And I do think this, this movie is a point better than, than Mortal Engines. So. All right, fair enough. Well, unfortunately, it sounds like Aquaman could have used a bit more of a magic touch. But after the break, we'll be discussing a movie where magic is certainly not an issue. Mary Poppins Returns. We'll be right back. back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, this year we've talked about a few long-awaited sequels. The Incredibles 2, Creed 2, Avengers Infinity War. But in terms of anticipation, none of these can stack up to the 54-year wait for a sequel to the Disney classic Mary Poppins. Halloween almost could. That's true. I, I didn't even think about Halloween, but, you know, there have been so many sequels over the years. But This is the first Mary Poppins sequel, and now it has finally arrived uh, thanks to Chicago director Rob Marshall. Said a few decades after the original, Mary Poppins Returns picks up with the adult Banks children, Michael and Jane, who are played here by Ben Whishaw and Emily Mortimer. As the film opens, we find Michael, a recent widower, in desperate financial need to support his children and to save the Banks family house. When the bank gives Michael a mere five days to pay off his debt or lose his home, the Banks family finds themselves in need of a miracle. Luckily for them, one soon arrives and in a familiar package when Mary Poppins, played by Emily Blunt, descends from the sky with her trademark umbrella and endeavors to take over as nanny to Michael's children. With the help of a kindly lamplighter, played by Lin-Manuel Miranda, Mary embarks on a familiar journey to teach the Banks children and their father about the joys of life and childhood. Scott, this movie has a lot to live up to, given that it sports the name of one of Disney's most beloved characters. Does it have a few too many spoonfuls of sugar for your liking, or is it practically perfect in every way? It is not practically perfect in every way. I think it's it's practically perfect in some ways. I think uh, the the music, and I I said this on my Letterboxd review of it, and the sense of wonder that it it gives you uh, is fantastic. I think that... If you're looking for a holiday movie to go see with a family, I don't know why it's not this movie, mm-hmm. uh, to be really honest. Uh, I, I know that Aquaman has slayed at the box office over the Christmas period, and, and I honestly just can't understand why you'd go see Aquaman over seeing this movie. Not because this movie is infinitely better than Aquaman, although it is much better than Aquaman, but just simply because like th- this is the family movie that you and your family should go see. I think that the the music is great. Uh, Emily Blunt as as Mary Poppins is great. Yeah, I think that I, I do have some complaints with some of the other uh, portrayals of some of the other of the other people in the film as well as some of the direction that those characters take. But, you know, everyone needs a little bit of Mary Poppins uh, and Emily and specifically the character, not just the movie, but the, the character Mary Poppins in their life. And I think that what this character embodies and reminds me of are the things that are so easy to forget sometimes in, in kind of the day-to-day grind of life and that's exactly what this movie showed this movie is about people who have forgotten what it's be, what it's like uh, in their day-to-day life in the struggles that they go through what it means to just kind of take a step back take a breath and appreciate life for what it is including uh some of the more you know unrealistic aspects of life as well and and the adventures that your mind can take you on and i think that that's one of the things that i really appreciated about this film 
even though I think I think there are some some, some serious I don't know if serious maybe too strong word, but there are some flaws with this movie. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I mean, I think that I probably like this even more than you, but I also think that um, you know, I, I I definitely recognize the flaws in this. I just think for me, the highs of this movie are so high. I mean, up there with any other movie this year, honestly, some of the scenes in this movie um, that it overcomes for me most of the flaws, which mainly come in the plotting and the storytelling. I mean, let's be frank here. The movie sets up the plot in the first 30 minutes or so, you know, with Michael losing his house, okay, or, you know, about to lose his house, got to find the shares to the bank. And then Mary Poppins shows up and that kind of just forget, we kind of just forget about all of that for about 40, the next 45 minutes to an hour of this movie as she's, you know, spiriting the children away on these adventures and Lin-Manuel Miranda there is there as the the lamplighter and it's all wonderful like it, I love watching these scenes the music is great the visuals are great but if you stop to think about it for a second you know when they're at Meryl Streep's shop getting this oh bowl fixed I'm like wait a minute what does this have to do with the the fact that he's losing his house or not I mean it it it, it really kind of loses its way in terms of the plot like halfway through that being said, it totally wins you back in the last 20 or 30 minutes, which I think are, are really great and include one of my favorite scenes of the year um, easily. And there are some really good cameos as well, I think. In Dick the Van line. Dyke. Yes, Dick Van Dyke was amazing. He's like 93 years old, I think. And I mean, there's no CGI in this scene. Like, I that's he was him. incontinent at this point. <laughs> that's him dancing on the desk. So shout out to him. He, he was great. Um, and Angela Lansbury as well. I thought that was her. I wasn't sure, but I well, thought that was her. I mean, the thing with me, for me, so that's, I mean, that's clearly my favorite scene in this movie. Like, the, oh, the balloon like, yeah. scene is incredible. Like, one of my favorite sequences of the year by far. Um, but to me, as good as Angela Lansbury does, it's so obvious that this part was meant to be a Julie Andrews cam- cameo. And for whatever reason, she just didn't agree to, to be in the movie. But there's even, you know, that moment in the scene where everyone is floating away and... Mary Poppins and the balloon lady stand right next to each other. You know, you see their faces right next to each other. And I just thought, oh, man, if that was Julie Andrews right there, like, here's the, you know, here's the older Mary Poppins and here's the new Mary Poppins. How perfect of a moment would that have been? That being said, still a fantastic scene. And there are some other fantastic scenes in this movie as well. I think the performances are great. I I don't, I mean, I haven't heard what you have to say about the supporting cast yet, but I don't. I didn't have a problem with a lot of their performances, to be honest. I think I really liked Ben Wishaw playing Michael, um, and I think Lin Manuel Miranda is so, so talented, and he he's able to show off that talent uh, in this movie as a very charming character. Um, so yeah, this this is a total winner, and as you said, you know, perfect family movie for the holidays. Yeah, I think that this movie, my, so, yeah, like I said in my Letterboxd review, what this film lacks in storytelling, it makes up for in the sense of wonder that it gives you. And maybe that's what we all need anyway Yeah, uh, from this movie. It's what, it's what we all want. And so in that sense, <laughs> right. it, it, the movie is exactly what you know I thought it would be. The plot is an excuse to have the movie, right? Like, it's not... Yeah. It, there, there's nothing... I really don't find anything redeeming about this plot. It's like, oh, this bad thing is happening. Don't worry about it. This is why you actually came to the yeah. movie for an hour. Resume plot for 20 minutes, and then, of course, like, the final scene that you're you're describing is, is a great moment, is a great scene in this film, but you don't get a free pass for being what I want you to be for yeah. having a bunch of stuff that's, like, not very good at all in your movie, and I think that the, 
you know, using the plot as a driver just to be able to produce scenes like, uh, you know, on the on the bowl, right? The the, the animated scenes, uh, you know, in the bathtub, on the bowl, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I mean, those are great sequences. It's great animation. It's great uh, fun, just to be really honest. It's great fun. And I, unfortunately, I couldn't help but think the entire time, but kind of what you thought, it didn't make me forget that the actual point of this movie is to not lose your house. Yeah. And uh, it felt weird that, the plot of the movie is set up as being about, and I think ultimately it remains the same. It remains the whole movie about this, but about Ben Wishaw and then, you know, tangentially Emily Mortimer's characters, uh, Michael and Jane trying to save this house. And then, you know, they're able to save this house when they ultimately remember what it's like to be kids. Very strange takeaway from Mm -hmm. the movie. I didn't really fully understand how that was what ultimately will save you. Um, which I think is the, is the key takeaway. I think it's important to, to, renew that sense of wonder to be reminded that you know there are more important things in life maybe um and and there are smaller wins in life that you should not that you should not take for granted and that you should appreciate but that being said i i couldn't help but think through a lot of this movie that like well i don't really understand what the point of this is for you know the under the overarching plot of the movie and and i did get to talk about that actually didn't like ben wishaw that much okay as as Michael Banks, I thought that he overacts it in a lot of moments. I think that he goes for a lot. You know, on the other hand, again, Lynn M. Miranda, incredibly talented. The guy can sing. He can dance. Very well. He can dance very well. I mean, the things that he Super can do on a light pole. Yeah. Oof. Man. <laughs> we'll get you going. That's a, um, that probably sounds a lot more risque than it actually oh, yeah, is. It's not risque at all. Um it's just a bunch of men dancing around a light pole. I mean, it's the reason probably why all they have to use lamplighter men for that scene instead yeah, of women. Because that's true. Yeah. Otherwise, it's pole dancing. Yes. Um, but, you know, as much as I like Emily Mortimer from the newsroom, again, I also don't think she's that great okay. as, as Jane. And part of it could be soured by the fact that I don't like these characters very much, um, maybe even more so than the plot. Like, I find, for example, as much as I like Jack, who's Lin-Manuel Miranda's character, I find his subplot with Jane... To be like yeah, very in, insufferable. Yeah, very undercut. <laughs> like, I I just I cringed every time, and not cringed like oh that's cheesy. I cringed because like oh that's not good. Yeah. what they're doing with this, it's it's very unnecessary. I don't need Jack to end very up with Jane. Ta- yeah, very tacked on just for like oh we got to have a romance somewhere in this movie. Yeah, yeah. We can't make the widowed guy go. Yeah, you <laughs> romantic with anyone. Um, what we could have given the admiral uh, a girlfriend. I would have loved that personally. The admiral was great. Who plays the Admiral? I, I, have, I have no idea if it was even anyone famous. But. David Warner plays the okay. Admiral. Well, Admiral Boom. He was great. <laughs> what a name. I didn't realize his name was Boom. Admiral Boom. Yeah, well, <laughs> just like the cannon that he shoots off. Yeah. Five minutes late until yeah. the end. Uh, so, I did, which th- is a great moment. I did think at the very that end was that was so very funny. Yeah. It's like finally they're such a good time. payoff for that whole thing that they set up from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, exactly, but you know, th- those are some of my problems with the movie. And then uh, again, like the plot being incredibly weak uh, is a huge plus. But Again, I want to emphasize what it lacks in storytelling, it makes up for, and the sense of wonder that it does give you. Because if you are uh, uh, able to forget you know, the things that aren't so great about mm. the plot and, and, and really immerse yourself in, in these sequences where Mary Poppins is taking you on an adventure, you're going to have a really great time in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, a, a lot of these scenes don't fit into the plot, but they're also still really well-done scenes. And so I think that's why... You know, the movie is maybe able to overcome some of the, uh, you know, misguided uh, plotting. Um, sure. But let's talk about Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins. I let's think do it. we both enjoyed her performance. Um, so I guess the question I'll ask you is, do you think it's worthy of an Oscar nomination? 
Ooh, okay, well, that requires me to think about some other performances this year. <laughs> I mean, Best Actress, again, a tough field as it was last year. Uh, you know, we haven't even talked about uh, Mary Queen of Scots yet, which I think Saoirse Ronan is a solid candidate. You might disagree with me on that. We'll get to that in the future. But I think she's great in that movie. Um, you know, we've had a lot of others with Olivia Coleman um, in The Favorite, Melissa McCarthy, um, you know, a few other a few other strong candidates who aren't coming to mind immediately, but... Yeah, so I think when I think about this year, yes, I think it I think it is worthy of an Oscar nomination. Yeah. I think this category actually might not be as strong as as we say it is. I think there are probably like three or four, in my opinion, like guaranteed nominations in my book. Mm-hmm. Like people who I would definitely nominate. I think Glenn Close and the wife yeah, is one of I'm them. Forgetting about that one. I think Lady Gaga and a Star is Born of course. makes sense to me. Um I think Melissa McCarthy as well. And then Olivia I, Coleman as well. Yeah, and Olivia Coleman and then it's, it's competitive in that sense, and so there's this fifth spot, which, you know, if you're just looking at the Golden Globes, you might say, all right, people competing for it are, you know, Nicole Kidman for Destroyer, which I've heard is, is getting really it's getting really good reviews for her performance yeah. in it, at the very least. Rosamund Pike in A Private War. Um, Elsie Fisher, you know, there is some buzz around her getting a Best, a best Actress that. nomination. Charlize Theron and Tully. I think, but these to me are all clearly second tier, and I think Emily Blunt is right in there in that second tier, and I think that, do I think it's worthy of an Oscar nomination? Yes. Do I think she will get an Oscar nomination? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. They might end up giving her a nomination in the supporting actress category. For A Quiet Place. For A Quiet Place. But, like, recognizing that it was, like, her year was a really strong Of course, yeah. Yeah, I think that if it's going to make it in, just talking about realistically what's going to happen, it's going to be that fifth spot that you're talking about. Um, But for me, she's firmly in there in terms of my you know, personal top five, my personal nominations for Best Actress. She's in there for me. I, I think she's wonderful in this role. And, like, honestly, you know, a lot of people have said this, but I, like, if you're going to do a Mary Poppins sequel, you got to get it right. And I can't imagine anyone else more perfect for the role than Emily Blunt. I think they did. I mean, they certainly got Mary Poppins right. In yes, movie. I think they did an incredible job with with getting her uh, as Mary Poppins. I think she she perfectly captures, you know, the balance of, Oh, she's the strict nanny, but also like there's this twinkle in her eye, and maybe she, it seems like she's you know really strict on the surface, but actually you know she's teaching the children uh, you know important things while also taking them on these these adventures. And I think you know she's I can't imagine that Julie Andrews will be disappointed with what Mary with what uh, Emily Blunt has to offer here as Mary Poppins. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she has. The perfect. Uh, I mean, if you're thinking about Mary Poppins as a character, even if you take Julie Andrews out of out of the uh, out of the equation here, I think that Emily Blunt is just the the perfect person for this role. Right? She has to be like she's the typical like austere British nanny, right? But yeah. you know, she has that twinkle in her eye, that kind of wink and a nod towards you know what I'm austere, but like we're gonna have a really great time, and I and at the end of the day, like. I'm gonna co- I'm gonna come off seeming meaner than I actually yeah. am, right? She's like, because I think her like the classic go-to line in this movie for me is like, "Oh, I suppose." <laughs> like, yeah, I don't see what's wrong with she, that. Or she, yeah, she like that. she's acting like she's hesitant, but really she's exactly. Yeah. And I think that you know whether or not this is Emily Emily Blunt's like actual you know pers- real life, if it's really easy for her to get this on or not, I have no idea. But like she nails it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and is that her singing? I don't actually know. I didn't do that much research. I think it is, yeah. And she I can mean, sing too. If you haven't seen it yet, she did with Lynn Manuel Miranda and James Corden, they did this like 
22 musicals in 12 minutes or something on James Corden's late night show, and mm-hmm. it's fantastic. I mean, they're they're all singing throughout the whole thing. They're all good singers. Um, so it's Wait, definitely... Lin-Manuel Miranda can sing? Yeah, who knew? Um, is there anything he can't do? That might be a better question at this point. Could he play Aquaman? I don't know if I want to. <laughs> I don't know. It would be a different kind of Aquaman. Let's put it that way. But since we're on the He'd topic... be more on track with all the Atlanteans, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like... Since we're uh, on the the topic of the ten dollar founding father, um, let's let's go to Lin Manuel Miranda now um, and his performance $10. as Jack, the lamplighter, who I think here is sort of the stand-in for Dick Van Dyke's Bert character from the original Mary Poppins. Um, what did you think of his performance? You know, he's obviously very talented. Did you think he fit well in the movie? Ah, uh, man, did he fit well in the movie? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that he did fit well in the movie, but he is really talented. Yeah, he, it's hard to say bad things about him because he put he obviously puts in a lot of effort. He's very likable, and you know the talent is unmatched. He fits. I will say this: he fits in in this movie insofar as the children are supposed to like learn from you know situations that are different than their own, or from and and, and I think this yeah. a central theme of this movie is saying that, like well, you know don't don't be boxed in by your typical i don't know beliefs or stereotypes or whatever you know you can you can learn from all places in life and and i think that's a, a core a core principle of a lot of what mary poppins is trying to teach the children right and so in that sense i think he does fit in in this movie that being said i'm, I'm not sure like a cockney lamplighter <laughs> um it really fits in that well in this yeah. movie i'm not i get why they do but like I was also, I mean, to kind of back up a second here, I'm also surprised, like, how much Lin-Manuel Miranda is in this movie. I know, yeah. Like, does he, I mean, like, does he qualify for a lead actor (laughs) nomination? I don't know. He's like, he seems like he's in there just as much, if not more. He's always just kind of there, yeah. Well, that's the thing, too. He's always just, like, there, or, like, if he's not there, then he's, like, right around the corner. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Which is kind of weird, to be honest. But it's one of those things where you just have to, like, don't think about it. Suspend your disbelief. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I mean, suspend your disbelief for a lot of reasons. Of course, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, th- that's kind of the smallest among them. He's always there. He's kind of along for the ride. And I think that he's a character to like kind of to kind of go along with, right? You kind of have to like not ask too many questions, not just in terms of suspending your disbelief, but just like, well, like, why are you mm-hmm. here, and why you have a very, and why is Mary Poppins okay with you following them around everywhere? Um, but that's but that's part of being a children's movie. I think that's part of the sense of wonder that this movie takes on so well. So is he shoehorned into this movie a little bit? Yes. Does he make up for being shoehorned in the movie with how good the performance is, how good his singing is, how good his dancing is? Yeah, he, he does. Yeah, I, I, I would have to agree. I think, you know, even though you could probably take his character out of the movie and you wouldn't lose a ton except for this one big number with all of the lamplighters. I think he's he's definitely a worthy addition to the movie, um, and especially during the you know the music <coughs> the music and dance sequences. I think he does a great job. Um, okay, let's talk about the other supporting cast. Um, we I mentioned Ben Wishaw and Emily Mortimer who played the Banks children. We haven't mentioned Colin Firth who is the evil banker in this movie. Um, Hated that guy. We also have some uh, some cameos. Uh, Meryl Streep shows up. 
and really, what for me was probably the most unnecessary sequence in the movie. <laughs> I was about to say that. I was like, um, when I, I mean, saw come it on. The I, it's play. Meryl Streep, but it's it's clearly they just wanted Meryl Streep to be in the movie. I literally so. didn't know she was in this movie yeah. until, until so in the splash, they go through all the main actors yeah. and actresses, and I'm like, Meryl Streep was in this movie. I know, Why yeah. is Meryl Streep in this movie? It really it is gets just the scene. one scene. Yeah. It gets to the scene, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, yeah. why is she in this movie? Um, which is, I, I, it's not as, it's not, it, well... Maybe she'll get a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Probably so, honestly. <laughs> no, it's not even that great of a... I mean, like, the awful accent that she's doing. Yeah. Like, Eastern European accent that she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just... It's not a it's not a bad performance, but, like, we can just go ahead and cut that scene out of the movie yeah. and be okay. We can cut that runtime down a little bit. Get it under right. two hours. You know I'm always in favor of that. I think this movie... And so, to that point, I think this movie has a lot of fat on it in general. I think there's a lot of scenes that are unnecessary. Yeah. Um, I think that... This is this is a prime example of it, but like honestly, like if you want this movie to just be like the playful, musical, wonderful movie that it is, like why are you giving? Which most people is that's what they're gonna want. Well, I mean, it's what I wanted. Yeah, movie. yeah. Uh, I don't know, like who would go see Mary Poppins for the story? I'm sorry, right. but like, I'm sorry if you're out there. Write it, write into us, leave yeah. a comment on on the podcast, and maybe we'll get you on here to talk about why you went to go see for the plot. But. Um, I, I don't know why then it devotes so much time to the plot. Like, there's a long setup to this movie. Yeah, and I think that, like, all of the stuff about banking and, where, you know, we got to find the shares and all this stuff, I don't I don't know how that's going to play for, like, an audience of kids. Because, you know, there were a lot of kids at my screening of this movie. And I, I, I don't... Were, no, there were a lot of crying infants in this movie, <laughs> to be yeah. clear for me. Um, I think... I, I'm not sure how, how that stuff is going to play. I'm not sure if we even really need, like... A villainous banker in this movie like i i don't really know what what's Colin all half Firth added although of course we do get the dick van dyke cameo out of the whole thing which i think is great i mean you could have just gotten that cameo with like a sequence yeah. of jack though you didn't need yeah i mean yeah you didn't need him to be the banker you didn't i mean like i get it's cool that you get the two lawyers um is it uh, i can't remember their names but you get the two lawyers who are kind of the henchmen of, yeah. of um, one of Weatherall. whom is the good cop and one of whom is the bad cop. Well, right, exactly. And I think that that I, you do get something from that, right? Like, you know, not the, don't judge a book by its cover kind of yeah. thing, which is <laughs> so on the nose in parts of this movie. Um, so I think hey, maybe hey, I, let's not let's not make it hay about it. There's actually a song called "The Cover Is Not the Book." <laughs> yeah, like I said, uh, but I, I think that again, I'm. Very, I would have been happier just cutting out some of the plot scenes in this movie in exchange for less runtime or more of Mary Poppins. Yeah, again, I think that Meryl Streep sequence for me is the most obvious thing that you could have cut out. For sure. I'm not sure if there's other places that that do stick out to me as like obvious, you know, we could have done without this. Just in terms of getting the same spectacle. I mean, certainly, you know, you don't need a lot of these scenes to further the plot, but I think... A lot of them amplified my enjoyment of the movie. I mean, especially the the Royal Dalton music hall sequence, which yeah, I think is, is great. And really, it, it's cool the way that they sort of weaved the traditional Disney animation style with the live action stuff in this sequence, which I think it, it comes off really well and, and looks really it's beautiful. It's like old school cartoony yeah, animation yeah. style. It's, it's, like, not, it's, it's not what you'd see these days. It's like the 90s Disney animation style. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe even before. I'm thinking like, you know, Mick, like not even 90s, like... Mid 1900s Mickey yeah. Mouse animation, but it fits with the oh, time period of the movie and the it's nostalgic gorgeous. feel in general. I mean, Abs- I think absolutely, it's great. yeah. Um, I'll just add that I, I did like Ben Wishaw. I think that 
I like the development that his character undergoes from, you know, he's become the stern father. He's become kind of jaded, doesn't actually believe that really what he experienced with Mary Poppins as a child really happened. Um, well, neither of them do. Right. Yes. But I, I like that. I like seeing his character develop over the course of the movie. And, you know, ultimately it pays off in that in that balloon sequence where he's the first one who is spirited away. And he says, I remember, you know, I everything that happened with Mary Poppins. It was real. It was true, which I think, you know, maybe it's a little corny, but well, then, I, it then was a weirdly, nice moment. And then weirdly sobering, you know, like five minutes later, Mary Poppins is like, they'll forget by tomorrow yeah, morning. Yeah. I'm just like, well, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But I, I mean, I, I liked him. I, th- I think he does a good job as the father. Um, sure. I didn't have a lot of problems with the cast uh, in general. I think, you know, they did a good job with, with who they picked to play these various roles. Um, okay. I guess, you know, we've talked at length about the plot and and maybe where we think it's a little too bulky, you know, where it kind of goes astray a little bit. Is there anything you want to say more about the music in this movie? Because I think most of it is really good. Yeah, most of it is really good. You know, you you come to Mary Poppins for this musical spectacle, for the, you know, the the adventures that you go on, right? And the music is so integral to that, right? Like you you mentioned the, the Royal... Adult Music Hall, mm-hmm. uh, the old, sorry, the older Adult mm-hmm. Music Hall, uh, you know, that's a great scene, yeah. so again, don't judge a book by its cover, kind of thing, or the book is not, the cover, the cover is, not, is, not, the book, is yeah. not the book, and then um, Imagine That, and um, it's, there's a couple other songs, too, that are very memorable, and that stick with you, not for the lyrics, but just how fun they are yeah. to experience. Well, and it's interesting to me, because they, sh- you know, the Oscars have put out their shortlist for Best Original Song. And there are two songs from this movie which made it. One of them is the the slower song that they sing at various parts of the movie. I can't. The you, place where lost things. Yes, yeah. and and also uh, trip a little light, fantastic, which is the song with the lamplighters. They're very catchy. It is, but also those are not two of the stronger songs in the movie to me. For me, yeah. I mean, the you know the songs for the Royal Dalton Music Hall, great. I also, I mean, again, my favorite sequence in the movie is the balloon sequence, and I think that the song. Nowhere to Go But Up, which is the song that they sing uh, during the sequence, definitely adds to why it's my favorite. I think it's my favorite song in in the movie as well. I I, I think it's great. Um, So a little disappointed not to see, um, you know, some of the the songs that I felt were stronger get nominated. But again, I feel the same way about A Star is Born. I would have liked to see Always Remember Us This Way get nominated over Shallow. I I mean, ultimately, it's... (laughs) You know whatever the you know whatever Walt Disney des, des, decides to, they submit, to push yeah. for the nominations, right? And mm-hmm. you know I can understand why they submitted those, right? You got your ballad and you have your your more upbeat song, especially if you go see this movie. Someone like you might remember the balloon scene more, but I have a feeling like a lot of people what, what people are going to remember, pro- like what I would in terms of like the fast paced catchy song, it's going to be triple light, fantastic yeah. with the spectacle of of all the lamplighters dancing, yeah, things like that. So I understand that, even though I agree. Those are not my two favorite songs uh, from the from the movie. My, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'd have to sit down and think exactly. Okay, which two is it? But I'm feeling pretty confident it's not either of those two. Yeah, uh, agreed. But I think that being said, it speaks to the quality of the music throughout the film. Yeah, um, because you know both they're of these, not bad songs by any. Yeah, both of these songs. You know, do I think that? I mean, we'll get to predictions on another podcast probably. But like, I probably think Shallow will take the yeah. Oscar. Um, and I think that Shallow probably is a better song than both of these two. But start to finish, the music here is, is probably better than A Star is Born. It's a close call, but... Yeah. Very different I music. might agree with you. Yes. Um, yeah. But I, I think that there's just there's just more great songs in this yeah. than there is in the A Star is Born. Soundtrack. Yeah. I, I don't 
necessarily disagree with that. Um, man, you're well, really I just, your way around I just it there. Need there are two go, great songs. I need songs. to listen to all of them all the way through. There are, there are three or four great songs right. on A Star Is Born. There's uh, Black Eye. There's Shallow. There's um, there's the one at the end. I'll and never there's love. Always Remembers This and, Way. Yeah. yeah, Always Remembers This Way. And there's one other one that's that's escaping me right now yeah. that I really like. Well, Maybe It's Time, which is Bra- oh, the yeah. other Bradley yeah, Cooper song. But yeah, I mean, I think there's probably more music in Mary Poppins, so it may be a little harder to compare. surprise them. you how long that album yeah. Star, A Star Is Born is. Yeah, uh, that's fair. But maybe that's a, a debate to be had in our awards uh, show. I'm sure we'll have it then. I, sorry, I didn't mean to drag us down this No, path, no, but, you're good. But the point is, I think that there are probably like, Five or six really good songs yes. in the Mary Poppins Returns soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I do think probably the two best A Star Is Born songs are better than the, in my opinion, the two best mm-hmm. uh, Mary Poppins Returns songs. But you know, maybe as a whole, yeah, yeah, it come down differently. Okay, well, let's move into the wrap up then for Mary Poppins Returns. Um, what was your favorite scene or moment in this movie? Yeah, good question. I think my favorite scene. I'll let you take the balloon scene because I know that's what you're gonna say. Yeah. Um, I do like. Oh man, it's so difficult because you know pick pick your Mary Poppins uh, moment here for for best scene. I think I'm gonna go with the Royal Dalton Music Hall sequence. Um, I wasn't sure in the moment how I felt about kind of the follow up to the actual performance. Right, we we get this chase scene uh, along the edge of the bowl, uh, quite literally. Yeah. Um, but I actually I really like it kind of retrospectively. I think mm-hmm. it's. I think it's that it was their moment to show off how good their animation is, yeah. Um, and so I respect it so much for that. So I think that entire sequence of first the musical performance of Emily Blunt and Lin Manuel Miranda, and then kind of the follow up animation sequence of the children chasing. I forget the names of, of the characters, but essentially are stand ins for um, Weatherall, the the evil banker. It's this the it's the wolf and and uh, eh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but it's a cool sequence. Yeah, I mean, I'm going with the balloon sequence, as I have alluded to. Um, I think it perfectly encapsulates that sense of wonder that we've talked about, you know, that uh, is really the highlight of this movie. And I think that it's, you know, it's a really good emotional payoff for really all of the characters in this movie because they all show up in this sequence. And, you know, great song to go along with it with, with Nowhere to Go But Up. Um, and then as far as, like, you know, a smaller moment, which I liked, you know, we talked about it, but the Admiral... I really like the the payoff of of the admirals, um, you know, sort of in joke Admiral that happens, Boom. like with the fact that he's always five minutes behind, but then they have to end up setting big Big Ben five minutes behind, and the clock finally rings, and he says, "Oh, they finally got it right." Yeah, I think that's and my think that's, that's my good. big question takeaway from this movie. He's like, did they ever fix the time? That's true. Yeah, maybe London is still five minutes behind the rest of the world. I don't. How could they do that? It's so so evil of them to do. Yeah. Uh, Okay, let's put a number on it. What would you give Mary Poppins Returns out of 10? I've been thinking a lot about this one. This is actually one of the harder ones that I've found to rate because mm-hmm. what it does well, it does amazing, yeah. right? And But I think there are ser- there are serious flaws with this movie for me. I understand that not everyone's going to have those or it's not going to be as problematic for everyone maybe. Um, but I think I'm ultimately landing somewhere around a 7 and I think I'm going to go uh, a little... Mm, yeah, see, I'm still, I'm still wrestling with it. I think about a 7.1. Yeah, I'm going to be higher just because I think... For me, what what it lacks in quality, um, it it makes up for in you know the sheer spectacle of it, and really you know the things that you go to see Mary Poppins Returns for. I also you know tend to score these movies based more on my personal feelings. Um, I mean, or at least my personal feelings. You know, my personal liking of the movie is 
an element that I consider alongside the quality of the movie. So I'm going with an 8.5. Um, I, I really enjoyed this movie. And yeah, I mean, it, it's in contention for my, my list, which we'll, we'll get to on the next episode. But um, yeah, it, it was a very worthy successor to Mary Poppins, I think. Okay, well, holiday season or not, I think we seem to be on the same page that Mary Poppins Returns is a delightful experience for the whole family, much like this podcast itself. Uh, when we come back from break, there are plenty of more delights to be had as we give brief reviews to Private Life and Bumblebee, break down all of the highlights from Schmodown Spectacular 3, and close with the latest news. We'll be right back. to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, with our best of 2018 episode rapidly approaching, I know that both of us have been trying to cram in some final movies to make sure our lists are as comprehensive as possible. In a minute, I want to get your thoughts on Leave No Trace and Bumblebee, but first, I'd like to discuss a movie that I had the pleasure of catching up with on Netflix this past week, Private Life. So this is the latest movie from Tamara Jenkins. Um, I believe it's nine years on from her last movie, which was a, a small movie called The Savages, which was sort of a festival darling to steal from the great Schmodown category. Um, a lot of people loved it, but it, she spent nine years. I, I, I think it's nine years, nine or 11. 11, 11 years. All right. Um, you know, making her next, making her follow up to, to The Savages. Um, but it's fine. She wrote Juliet Naked, though. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Well, there you go. Um, she's obviously a, a solid talent, uh, but I think this movie reflects that. I think it was probably worth the eleven-year wait. It's a really great um, drama, comedy drama about uh, a older married couple in their uh, early forties uh, who have been trying for years to have a, a child, and the the couple is played by Paul Giamatti and Catherine Hahn. And uh, you know, they've they've basically tried. All of the all of this, uh, all of the different types of you know in vitro fertilization, alternative methods to get pregnant because you know for various reasons they can't get pregnant um, in the traditional way, um, and we see you know a lot of the first part of the movie is sort of them going through these different uh, you know treatments and and none of them are really working, and eventually you know their doctor tells them, hey you know really your only option at this point is to have a sur- surrogate mother. Um, and, you know, have Paul Giamatti, be, because because Catherine Hahn can't really care, can't carry, so have, you know, the surrogate mother give birth to the child in. And Catherine Hahn won't be the biological mother, but it will be her child along with uh, Paul Giamatti. And at first, you know, Catherine Hahn is really resistant to this because of, because of the fact that it won't be her biological child. Um, but as they start to come around a little bit, um, when they find a potential uh, donor within their fa- egg donor within their family, um, and that is uh, her. The actress's name is escaping me, and also her character's name is escaping me. Uh, but it's it's the their their niece, um, and she is sort of this free spirited uh, college dropout who. Uh, Sadie Barrett, played by Kaylee Carter. Right, Sadie, played by Kaylee Carter, who does a great job and really goes toe to toe with. Paul Giamatti and Catherine Hahn, two you know heavyweights throughout this movie. Um, but 
their niece, she's she's their niece, um, and she's, again, like I said, she's his free spirit, college dropout. She's returned home. Um, her family is not particularly happy with her. Her mom is played by uh, Molly Shannon, and her dad is played by, um, forgetting, but um, it's someone else of note as well. Um, I should have had this information on hand. Uh, I was counting on my memory here, and it's failing me. But, um, but yeah, but they, d- they do a great job as well. Um, but so Sadie, you know, they talk to Sadie, and she decides to be their egg donor. Um, and so the rest of the movie is really about them um, going through this process with Sadie, who is, you know, kind of, you know, she, she's doing a great service to them. She really wants to help out, help out, um, you know, Richard and Rachel, who are Paul Giamatti and, and Catherine Hahn, but also she's not the most reliable person. Um, so trying to keep her on track with what she needs to be doing for the egg donation. Um, and I think this is a really solid, again, comedy drama, um, very well acted. Catherine Hahn, especially, I think is a real standout, but I think Paul Giamatti, I don't think this movie would be as good if she didn't have I don't think her performance would be as good if she didn't have someone like Paul Giamatti, um, who she shares great chemistry with. I mean, you really get the sense that these people have been married, you know, for a long time. And yes, they have their disagreements, disagreements, and you know, we see that some of those scenes in the movie. But we also see, you know, that they really do love each other, and we we get those uh, moments as well, which are really nice. Um, and there's some solid laughs in this movie as well. You know, maybe when I'm describing the the plot of the movie, it doesn't sound like it's it's a laugh riot. But I was surprised at, at how much comedy the the movie uh, you know manages to wring out of its premise. And I think that it has a great emotional payoff. So many movies do falter in their final act. I think this is an example of a movie which only gets stronger in its final act. And especially the final scene, the final shot of this movie is brilliant. Probably the best part of this entire movie um, and, you know, really ends the movie on, on a positive and note and, and a very, you know, again, a very emotional payoff um, that really rewards you for the time that you spent caring about these characters throughout the movie, um, even if it's perhaps not the happy ending per se that you are looking for um, all along. So yeah, a great work from Tamara Jenkins, great work from these actors. I think this is a small film, but it's a it's a Netflix release, so I hope that people will catch up with it because there you know there's no reason unless you don't have Netflix um, why you can't catch up with it. This is not a movie like Roma where it's like oh you should try to see this on the big screen. I mean, of course you should try to see every movie on the big screen if you can. Oh, you won't be able to find this movie on the big screen, right? And I don't think that the experience would be greatly enhanced by watching this on a big screen. So yeah, very very big fan of this movie. Uh, I'm giving it an eight point six overall. Um, really liked it. Private Life. Catch up with it on Netflix. Um, Scott, I know you have a couple of movies that you want to talk about as well, including one that I'm a huge fan of that I talked about earlier this year, and that's uh, Leave No Trace from Deborah Granick. Uh, you finally had time to catch up with this one. Uh, what were your thoughts? I did. It was my, it was my Christmas it was my Christmas Day movie that I that I saw. I wow. didn't, I didn't venture out to the movies, but I. Uh, I went out, saw it. it you, I remember, gave it gave it a nine point four back when you reviewed it uh, a long time ago. I think maybe back in in July. And I stand by that. It's it's a great film. Well, you know, I stand by that score too. Yeah. Um, I loved this movie. I was, you know, I this I think this year could be summed up by saying that I was a little bit less hot on a lot of the indie movies that you were hot on. I think um, eighth, eighth grade being the, the the prime example of that, which I'm sure we'll get into a nice argument over on uh, an award season and a top ten list, maybe even. Uh, on the next episode, but 
this movie, I, I have no disagreements with your review of it. The, the, it. Thomasine McKenzie and Ben Foster, both, you know, amazing in the, in this film. They do something special with their with their two performances. Uh, easily best ensemble cast of the year uh, for the SAG Awards. No, wow. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's better better cast than Bohemian Rhapsody, though, to go back to our point from the last episode. Yeah, that definitely was the joke that I was making there. Um, no, but... Uh, this movie doesn't really have an ensemble cast. It has maybe like six characters in the entire movie. Um, that being said, what these two lead performances do is something really special. I think that the plot of the movie might be uh, not. I mean, not as not not quite as captivating maybe as uh, the the characters' performances or some of the themes that it explores. But that being said, it's still a strong point in in a really strong movie. I found, you know, what you have here just kind of set up for people who maybe have forgotten or haven't had the chance to see it. You have basically a father-daughter drama, essentially, where the father is a Iraq war veteran suffering from PTSD, and his 13-year-old daughter, who's played by Thomas E. McKenzie, is Tom. They live basically in a public park in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And, you know, the, the setup for the movie is essentially their world is disrupted when essentially child services or uh, some sort of government agency comes uh, after Tom was seen by a runner in the woods. You know, he reports that, oh, I think that this there's this person living in the woods uh, and they get they get found, they get taken. And then ultimately the rest of this movie unfolds basically trying to come to terms with the fact that Tom, who's now, you know, getting older into adolescence, you know, teenage years, is realizing after this first kind of um, introduction to the real world, or what might be the real world for you and me, uh, Scott, it, she's kind of introduced to this and realizes that she is really different than everyone else and ultimately, you know, wants to integrate. I think that's the best way, but wants to integrate into society, wants to become, you know, a quote-unquote normal kid or at least a more normal kid, right? Um, and that being said, her father, suffering from PTSD, is not able to live comfortably, at least, with in this kind of in, in society, essentially. And he needs to live in the woods. He needs to live by his own terms and on his own rules, but still deeply loves his daughter. Uh, and I think I mentioned this in my letterbox review after I saw this. I don't know if you had the chance to to read that, Scott. But basically, what I think that the, you know the, the lynch the two linchpins of this is of the themes of these of this movie which really hit home and strike strike a chord with me is one you know does it ultimately matter whether or not we like what societal norms are do we need societal norms to to feel like we have a sense of belonging to feel like we have a sense of purpose in life and to ultimately enjoy life and i i don't think that the movie necessarily comes down as yes or no or or maybe it's a more nuanced answer than that but it's asking that question right and then the second question it asks is you know is it impossible sometimes to do what's best for someone while all, while also doing what's best for yourself, mm-hmm. and I think these these two themes um, spread further into society and strike a deeper chord than just the context of this movie. Although I think this movie uh, and the context of this movie is a perfect medium to discuss to kind of go to kind of explore these themes. And I think that the performances you get out of these two people, uh, the narrative that is constructed, and, and ultimately where this movie ends up, is 
really very powerful movie. really powerful really gorgeous really beautiful movie yeah i'm not surprised at all that you you love this movie just because being the psych major that you are i feel like there's a lot of sort of psychological sociological questions that this movie is asking you know about social conditioning and things like this you know mm-hmm. how much do we need our environment uh, yeah. How much? How 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 important is our environment to our development as as human beings? And but I think it asks those questions and answers them in a really intelligent and impactful way. And I think it really respects both of these characters um, in a way that a worse movie probably wouldn't. And yeah, great performances. It builds to that really powerful moment. That it's it's a you know it's a quiet moment. It's a quiet movie, um, yep. but very powerful. You know, as powerful as. A movie which makes a bigger deal about its emotional payoff. Yeah, I only have a couple, like I said, a couple minor complaints with the plot, but I was just really satisfied at the end of this movie, and so I'm actually coming out with the exact same score that you did with the 9.4. Great. Yeah, so, you know, the other movie that you mentioned that I'd seen in the last few days, you know, this Christmas period is Bumblebee, you know. <laughs> I the man, of the, the man of the box office this year. I've reviewed yeah. more box office hits than you have, probably, um, which maybe speaks to what I'm interested in seeing more. I'm an indie shill. <laughs> yeah, you and your indie movie theater yeah. in Winston-Salem. Uh, Shout no, out Aperture. I saw Bumblebee, and I think that, you know, again, going back to reference Aquaman here, Aquaman is, for some reason, the highest grossing movie over the Christmas period. But if you're looking for the the box office spectacle, uh, something to go see that's not Mary Poppins. Again, it's a different. It is a spectacle, but a different kind of spectacle than than Aquaman. If you're looking for that flavor of spectacle, which I think Bumblebee is closer to, I don't know why you wouldn't go see Bumblebee <laughs> instead of Aquaman. Um, it's just it's it's a better version of all the Transformer <laughs> movies that we've gotten to date. Um, I did enjoy the very first Transformers. Uh, live action movie with Shia LaBeouf. Rest in, may, may his acting career rest in peace. Yeah, may Megan Fox's acting career rest in peace. <laughs> yeah, didn't even know she still even existed. Um, anyway, we got, we got Jennifer's body, which is great in my opinion. But yeah, I haven't seen that one and don't know if I will. But that being said, you have Bumblebee, which is a, a prequel to all the Transformers movie, the, the kind of series of Transformers movies that we've gotten over the past you know decade plus. Uh, uh, I think there's been five or six movies, and it stars Haley Steinfeld as kind of the main lead actress here. Her name is escaping me at this moment, but oh, Charlie. Uh, Charlie is her name. She basically plays this teenage kid who um, her father has has passed away, and she's still struggling with that loss in her life. And her family is not easy for her to connect with. And and one day she comes across Bumblebee, uh, right? Who kind of to the the setup for this is that. The start of the movie is the war on Cybertron, and you have all the Autobots kind of backed into a corner, Optimus and a few others, and Bumblebee and a bunch of the other Autobots besides Optimus are kind of sent off to different corners of the galaxy to essentially try to preserve the the rebellion on Cybertron that the Autobots represent. And so Bumblebee lands, uh, you know, lands on Earth, but it's still being followed by the Decepticons. Uh, I forget which... Decepticons exactly is the one that he comes across, you know, in the opening sequence of the movie. But basically, Bumblebee crashes into this kind of military base, which John Cena uh, is is the head of. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, exactly. There you go. I, I wish they had that lead in <laughs> John Cena. Right. In, in every John Cena movie, they should just do that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but you know, I think this movie. So yeah, the setup is, and, and you know, we mentioned earlier. This actually reminded me uh, in the Solo movie, right? We really hated kind of the the lead into how he got the name oh, yeah. Han Solo. Well, this movie gives you the reason why Bumblebee doesn't have a voice. 
and it's much better than Solo because he actually starts out with a voice of his own, right? But in this fight, after he lands on Earth, he actually fights a Decepticon, and he's kind of cornered, and and ultimately it looks like he's about to get killed, and he won't reveal where Optimus is, and so the Decepticon that he's fighting rips out his vocal box. Mm. So it's actually a really good uh, lead into why mm. he has to use, and and honestly, it's also a key pl- a subplot of the movie is how he begins to you know create a voice of his own through his, the radio. Uh, it's actually a very a very nice honestly emotionally satisfying uh subplot of the movie although it's not always it doesn't always take center stage but anyway that's the lead-in uh he manages to escape the fight with the decepticon um and goes into kind of shut down to kind of essentially survive that moment um ends up in this in this used car lot is this kind of junk uh beetle right and is ultimately discovered by this kind of down her luck Haley steinfeld charlie character um, it's her birthday and the guy who owns the used car lot, a kind of junkyard almost even. Actually, that's what it is. It's like, it's actually, it's actually a Marine repair shop is actually what it is with, with some used cars on the lot. Um, she gives it, he gives it to her for her birthday essentially. And then the rest of this movie kind of unfolds where you have the Decepticon still tracking Bumblebee, um, as well as this military base who really don't want these robots. Uh, they were trying to up, essentially find out where these robots are and, and kind of, uh, get them off the planet, essentially. And and I will say I was kind of surprised. At first, I really thought John Cena's uh, character, and as well as kind of the U.S. military in general here, is, is, it would just be very, this very one-dimensional kind of uh, hate things, hate aliens, things I don't know, get them out of here. Um, but his character uh, takes, takes, a, takes a turn uh, that was really surprising and, and really rewarding towards the end of the movie for me um, and, made, and, and made it a lot better and, and not what I expected. Uh, Haley Steinfeld, and I think also you haven't seen Love Simon. I don't think this year, but one of the kind of supporting main supporting actors in that movie is it is a main supporting actor in this movie. Jorge Lindeborg Jr. plays kind of the love interest of Charlie um, in, in the movie, and he there's a, a few quite quite some some quite cute fu- fun scenes between the two of them. Um, ultimately, kind of I think not a satisfying subplot to the movie for me, but I understand why it's there, and you do get a, a couple moments out of it that are pretty good. But ultimately, this is going to be about the relationship between Haley Steinfeld's Charlie and, and Bumblebee. And it's really beautiful. And the action sequences, the few that there are, right? This is not your blockbuster action Michael Bay Transformers movie. This is your more subtle um, Travis Knight directed movie, which I'm not sure if he's directing any other movies. But you can tell there's more nuance there uh, with him at, with him at the helm and with um, Christina Hodson who wrote this movie. There, there's more nuance. There's there's more of the uh, interpersonal relationships there uh, going for it, which you see sprinkles of. I think in some of the earlier Transformers movies, you'll have to forgive me. I haven't seen some of the any of the Mark Wahlberg Transformers seen any movies. Of them. You haven't seen any of them. Period. You haven't even seen the nope. original one. Dang. Okay. Well, you get sprinkles of that kind of honestly between uh, Shia LaBeouf's character and uh, Bumblebee, right? Like you try to get these relationships, and even also to Optimus Prime, right? You, you, they try to build nuggets of this relationship and that but this movie really uh sells itself on that relationship between robot and man which i know scott you're kind of skeptical of probably um but i i hear your your complaint about why you don't find transformers that interesting franchise because like you can't really care about a robot this movie is not going to be ex machina let's put it that way did you care about (laughs) uh, did you care about alicia vikander's robot i mean i was interested in the character sure but i mean ultimately i think what you get out of this movie is something that you know maybe ultimately I'm still not able to be fully invested in Bumblebee as a robot character. But that being said, I'm rooting for Bumblebee. I'm rooting for Haley Steinfeld. And though this movie isn't perfect, it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be my top 10 or top 20 list of this year. 
it's a significant improvement in the Transformers franchise. And if we're framing it in terms of a path forward for this for this universe, for the Transformers universe, there is some life left in this in these old robots, right? There is something that is still there to be captured. Uh, and you know, I have no idea where they're going to go from here. If they're going to go for the prequels, or they're kind of go like an anthology kind of thing. I don't know if they can, you know, unless they essentially just remake the first movie. I, I don't really know where there is left to go in this franchise. But this was a really nice movie, and if they do more movies like this, I'll go see them. What's your number? Yeah, I think my number is somewhere in the seven, you know, the high, the the low to mid sevens range, and I think I'm coming out around a, a seven point four. All right, yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I've never seen any of the Transformers movies. Um, I have no connection to the Transformers franchise whatsoever. I never watched the cartoon, you know, never played with the toys or anything. So even just you describing the plot is kind of like someone speaking Greek to me. Um, But, you know, I've heard so many good things about this movie that I do want to check it out once it comes out on, on VOD. I probably won't go see it in theater just because there's so much else out right now that I would rather see. Sure. But, you know, I, it sounds like it's, it's definitely worth checking out. So maybe this will be the movie to get me, get me in on the Transformers franchise. Yeah. And I think that's probably true. The, The shame is though, if you watch this movie as your way to get into the franchise, I wouldn't recommend necessarily going and watching the other movies because it is so different. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is a gateway into the franchise, but it's a gateway that you're then, I wouldn't recommend uh, going and exploring the other right. the other movies if you like this movie. Because if you like this movie, I'm not sure that you're going to like the other movies. Yeah, I have no intention, honestly, of ever watching those other ones. I mean, Michael Bay and like the two hour, 40 minute runtime of all of them. Is that true? Jeez. Yeah. No, no way. I'm Third highest grossing director of all time though, Michael Bay. Well, at least he's uh, he's doing well for himself uh, financially. That's I guess that's what really matters, right? Uh, before we move on to the schmodown, I want to briefly mention that uh, the the husband of Molly Shannon in Private Life was played by John Carroll Lynch. I can't believe that I forgot the Zodiac Killer himself mm. um, when oh, I was oh, describing sure. the movie. Yeah, but he does a great job. So sorry about that. Please don't murder me. Um, <laughs> Okay. We can get Jake Gyllenhaal to solve the case. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really, really the... Uh, and, and Mark Ruffalo, of course, mm-hmm. and Robert Downey Jr. Um, Iron Man. What a great movie. He's lost in space. You can't Side even know about him. What a great movie. Um, okay, let's move on now to the the big event in the Schmodown world, which we, Scott, briefly touched on at the start of this episode in the intro. Uh, we watched the Schmodown Spectacular this past week. Seven hours of Schmodown goodness to close out season five. Six title matches. Uh, you know, we could probably spend a lot... Five lot- title matches, but... Yeah. Sorry, six matches total, four title matches, I oh, believe. right. Yeah. Wait, number... Number one contender oh, match. Gosh, what was the other match? Oh, the Commissioner Ball. Yes. Um, Woo, we both messed it up. Woo, let's do it. Um, yeah, but because we could probably talk for, for a while about this, let's just keep it brief. What are one or two highlights from the Spectacular? You know, there was a lot of great action. I think this was better than last year's Spectacular, for me, at least. Shower Wolves versus Who the Boss. Absolutely. Um, number one moment for me. Great match. One of the best of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about Schmodown Awards, end of year awards on a different podcast, but I voted that for match of the year. Um, I, I think I didn't, but it was up there for me. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, honestly, just kind of the, the payoff for the, the anarchy or sorry, the, um, the corruption storyline, right? You get the, to, I mean, yeah, we're spoiling it, right? We can just talk oh, about yeah, it. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Christian Harloff, who it didn't surprise me, right? It was still emotionally satisfying. But it didn't surprise me that he was the one mm-hmm. pulling the strings behind uh, Mike Kanowski and Polly G above Mike. But uh, it was still satisfying to get that payoff, and then you know, to, to get his sort of banter at Thad. Um, 
during during the end of the commissioner ball. Even yeah. though he, even though Christian didn't win the commissioner ball, Emma Fife won the commissioner. Shockingly, ball. yeah. Um, he 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 had a great late surge to to pull him back in, but yeah. lost, lost it in sudden death. Um, it was still a rewarding uh, aftermath moment there, and then uh, I think the the pinnacle of of this for me as, as a person who is a big fan of both of these characters this year is the is the guy tackles Bateman absolutely at the end of video one the apparently the, William Bibiani's coffee table was oh the one God, that got yeah, broken that so in the, uh, in the uh, yeah I, it would be really great if Christian was like can we just borrow your coffee table promise we'll give it back <laughs> <laughs> Poor uh, he didn't get it back yeah He'll, but it's fine though he's standing anyway he can just hold his coffee that's table. true yeah uh, yeah, no, I, I think you've hit on a lot of the great ones. You know, the Who's the Boss Shirewolves match was fantastic. I mean, not only did it come down to the last question, but just really high-quality match throughout. It was tied after rounds one and two um, after an amazing performance by Who's the Boss on Festival Darlings. Um, I was worried for them. Yeah, but final score was 34-31, I believe. So really just great, you know, very... And it came down to the last question. Exactly, right? yeah. very high-quality uh, match. But it was great just for me to see that the Shire Wolves retain that title just because so many people have been talking crap about their run to the title and whether yeah. or not they earned it, you know, whether or not they had an easy path to the title or whatever. And maybe and maybe they did have an easy path to That doesn't mean they didn't earn it. Right. And it doesn't mean that they weren't they didn't deserve it. And I think certainly now after this match, they've settled all debates because they went up against, you know, Ben Bateman, nominee for player of the year this year, and Mark Riley, who is a legend in the Schmodown. And you know, a Mount Rushmore guy in the Schmodown, and they they beat them. So I think there should be no complaints whatsoever about the Shire Wolves at this point. Uh, they have definitely proved themselves as great champions and but I they like, haven't defended the belt twice now. Yeah, I don't know what excuse people are going to make up now, but it'll probably just be yeah. equally as ridiculous. Um, also loved the guy tackle of uh, of Ben Bateman. It was great after, you know, really surprising moment after, you know, it seemed like Guy was, was more amenable to Ben Bateman switching over and joining Mark Riley. Um, Easily healed as, as team partner. Guy. I have my thoughts. I didn't actually vote for Andrew Guy just because he was not around for a, for a large part of the season, but we'll talk about that later. Here. I voted for KO. But, um, not a heel. Yeah, well. Uh, but, yeah, I think that, that that was great. Now I'm interested to see if Bateman's going to join the Horsemen. I mean, it certainly seems like that might be the I can't, I can't see him joining here. John Roca's faction. Yeah, what, but with Matt Nose leaving, there is a spot open in... In the Horseman. Um, Dag, I mean, I've also heard crazy things like Dagnino is going to manage. Yeah, I don't know about that. But, um, but I mean, you know, in that match between Roca and Bateman, we did see they were a lot more civil to each other than we expected. So maybe, you know, they've been kind of building up the storyline they, a little bit. They have been. I mean, you've seen it over the course of the Anarchy tournament. That yeah. Bateman is, and to a lesser extent, but also Dagnino is like being less less of a heel mm-hmm. uh, on, both, on both accounts. And then especially right in this final match where you have... Finstock, um, Bobby Gucci, Tom Dagnino, essentially congrat- like congratulating Emma Fife, shaking the hand of Emma Fife, right? Um, yeah, and like that is that is the biggest face. Like it's not being talked about the biggest face turn of the year, right, right there. Yeah. Um, and then Ben Bateman also being incredibly um, congratulatory for the last couple of matches, right, and and showing more re- respect. Although again, still getting the backhanded jabs every once in a while on people, but not so much in this last match. You can see the face turn. As it happened, a lot of people thought maybe Riley would heel turn, but I think it's actually been the other way, the other way around here. So if he joins the Horseman, I'm not going to be surprised at all. I still like, I, I think the best, I think the best thing, and this is my like, you know, pie in the sky prediction for 
um, plot for next year. If he does join the Horsemen, you're then going to get Civil War in the Horsemen. Oh, um, there you go. The, that, that's that's my pie in the sky. Like right, it. Write down a time code, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it maybe it'll come true. I mean, we've had I feel like we've had some pretty good predictions as far as the Schmodown this year. But um, but yeah, some other highlights. I mean, always seeing Alex Damon show off his Star Wars knowledge is always really a, such an impressive thing to behold. And a better showing for Ken this time around. Yes, it really was. Uh, he held he definitely held his own. We'll talk about this in our awards episode. But I actually voted Alex Damon for Star Wars Inner Geekdom Player of the Year. I I almost did as well. I ultimately. I kind of did like the the thing that probably a lot of Oscar uh, critics hate when I like tried to give a nomination to every, like I figured out a way to give a nomination to like a vote for yeah. every single person yeah because um, I thought they uh, deserved it and so I ultimately didn't nominate Alex Damon for Intergeekdom mm-hmm. Star Wars Play of the Year but I'm like I'm kind of having a little bit of regret because I really considered it for a while and I think that I might have should yeah I mean, maybe should have but then it it meant that I was either gonna not be able I think I was gonna have to not be able to vote for um, one of Mike Romara right. for an award, which didn't feel right to me either. That's a, the other talking point for me from this is the whole conclusion to this inner geek to match. Also, a great match um, yeah. between Mike and Mara. Mike really got on top. I mean, yeah, sudden death. Yeah, um, but, but soured. Really, yeah, soured by whatever happened with Mara Kanopic at the end of this match. First of all, it seemed like she was really irritated with Mike, Mike for kind of delaying the reveal of his last answer. But then in her her inter- post match interview, um, you know, she she basically it was basically just one question. Her saying that, uh, you know, this ha- she's spent way too much time on the Schmodown. It's not good for her health, so she's stepping away. And like that was it. It was obviously very heavily edited, so there's probably more to it than that. But I'd be interested to know because there's been some back and forth on Twitter too as well. I sent you a tweet that Mike Kalinowski's girlfriend was kind of taking some shots at Mara and maybe implying that she was kind of a sore loser. So it. It'd be interesting to know how much of this is, well, I mean, is it, how legit is it, you know, that she's saying she needs to step away from this, or was it really just in the heat of the moment, disappointment at losing the belt to, to KO? Yeah. Um, but for what, whatever the case, it seems like we won't see Mara for a little bit in the Schmodown, which is a shame because she was one of the great stories of this year. Yeah, and honestly, like, I, lo- I like Mara a lot. I think that she still is on, you know, Mike has had such an incredible year in the inner geekdom. He only lost his first match with Mara because of a ridiculous five-point question. Yeah, really <laughs> Maybe was. the hardest question in a non-Star Wars match in history of the Schmodown. Um, but for me, I think that... So, I, so And that's to say that I think Mike and Mara both deserve the belt, right? They've, they're clearly the best players. Like, I know Rachel's amazing, and I'd love to. I, we're, I mean, we're going to see a match with Rachel yeah. next year, but it, it, whether it's Rachel and Mike or, you know, if Mara does come back next year, Mara and Rachel, it, it's going to happen, and I can't wait to. But that, that trio is by far the strongest in the inner geekdom, and I can't wait to see them have more matches because their matches are spectacles, fire. they're treats, yeah. they're fire, exactly. You know, they produce just the most competitive matches that you'll see in the Schmodown. And. It was disappointing that the takeaway from the Inner Geekdom match is not that you had this incredible sudden death match between Mike and Mara, who already had a great first match against each other, but that it's this, um, you know, I, I tend to believe her when she said it was bad for her health, absolutely, uh, but I also tend to think that it's probably, uh, you know, to your point, Scott, a little column A, a little column B. I think she's probably a little sour that she's lost the match, uh, but that being said, that doesn't mean that it it isn't also true that it's been bad for her mental health, and if she needs to take a step back... You know, take take the time you need. Brienne did that as well uh, when she was struggling with her mental health. I think she, I mean, she did it in a different stage, right? She didn't. It, it wasn't as much of a spectacle. Yeah. Um, her retreating for her the sake of her mental health, right? But I hope that 
uh, Mara is able to take the time she needs. And if she ultimately decides that she can uh, invest the time and energy and heart uh, to be in the movie Trivia Schmodown, um, and if she's able to balance that in her life in a way that is good for her mental health, I hope that she's able to come back because the fireworks that you see in these matches in terms of the trivia knowledge it is fantastic. And I don't want her incredible year um, a- as a rookie to be ultimately overshadowed, which I think that it will be um, by this sort of exit at the end of the year, which is really unfortunate because, yeah. you know, before, you know, before the, um, before the spectacular, she was shooing for rookie of the year. And I'm not sure that she's going to win rookie of the year anymore. I definitely don't think so with Ethan Irwin claiming the title, but yeah, I mean, for me, you know, her rise as well as the, the KO, the rise of KO and, uh, Rachel and, in inner geekdom has been a great story for me this year. Cause I, was not very invested in the inner geekdom in the past just because... Hector Navarro and Jason Well, Inman. I mean, they, I like those guys. Don't get me wrong, but I just don't know a lot of the questions, so it's hard for me to get as involved as I am, mm-hmm. you know, with a typical singles or team match. Yep. But, you know, having these three personalities and, you know, some of the others as well, and, and the fact that they leaned into the inner geekdom a lot more heavily this season than they have in the past... With the really, tournament, which I hope they would repeat next year. Yeah, and I think they will. I mean, it seems like everyone was a big fan of it. But, you know, really a, a, one of the one of the highlights of Season 5 for me. But, yeah, we'll get to some more highlights on our, our Schmodown exclusive episode that we're going to do in a few weeks. Uh, but for now, uh, I think we'll move on to, to finish the show out with some news. Um, big trailer news on Christmas Day. Uh, Jordan Peele... Uh, of course, director of Get Out dropped his new dropped the trailer for his new film Us, which is coming out in early 2019. He also stars in the film, unlike in Get Out. A lot of seeing a lot of you know positive reactions. Looks like it's going to be pretty wild to me. Uh, what were your thoughts on this trailer? I think wild is is exactly the way to yeah. describe this. When he you know teased it with the shot of the scissors uh, a few weeks back, people were like, oh my god, what is this going to be yeah. about? Um, I don't think anyone probably predicted that this is what it was going to be about because you know. This is a movie. Of, well, I should sorry to, to mind up. You know, Get Out is a movie about race relations uh, in, in modern times, right? And, and how implicit racism um, still exists and it is pervasive in society. This movie, he's come out and point blank said, like, this movie is not about race. This movie is about how we, uh, as individuals, are often our own worst enemies and often, you know, will undermine ourselves and our own ambitions. And you know, this is this is a you know metaphor uh, for for that reality in life. And so. Uh, I'm really excited about this. This seems to be leaning in way more to the horror element. I could be wrong. Maybe it's just the way the trailer is cut. Yeah. We'll see when it comes out. But, you know, Get Out, although it is a horror movie, I don't think it has... It doesn't lean too heavily into the horror elements, you know, except in very particular scenes, and it doesn't last for too long. Uh, this movie, to me, seems it will be, you know, wrapped in, in the horror genre. And that... I, I wonder if it will be... I wonder if that will help or hurt its numbers. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited for it. Um, I will say one thing I want to add that I that I sent to you a tweet that I saw <laughs> after this uh, was released on Christmas Day was about uh, whether or not Jordan Peele is trying to send us all a message in the U.S. as you know this movie is titled Us, um, and so combining Get Out and Us, <laughs> uh, Get Out U.S. is actually the way they were reading it. Um, it. It was really funny, and then a reply tweet which was the best of all saying. That if his next movie is real is called Real Talk, that they're packing their bags immediately and leaving the country. Um, so yeah. we'll see, Scott. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, for me, it looks it doesn't look like it's going to have sort of the same social commentary as we got from Get Out. It's a, it's yeah, it's a different kind, I think. So I, I you know I do wonder if that'll hurt it a lot, but I I can't see it hurting it that much just because Get Out. I mean, people are still riding the high from Get Out, so I think they're going to be on board for whatever Jordan Peele has to do. 
Um, but it will inter- be interesting to see if he can, you know, capture everyone with the way that he did with Get Out. I saw this trailer in a movie that I see that I saw after Christmas Day, um, and it was showing in theaters, and it, the theater was full. Obviously, we were here in in you know suburban Tennessee, where it's not it's not your uh, urban New England crowd that yeah. I'm used to. And this trailer showed, and they were like, "That movie looks awful." <laughs> <laughs> right, and my and my my uh, mom and brother said the same thing. So yeah. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, we've talked a little bit about in the past about The Mandalorian, which is the Star Wars series that is going to be booting up from Jon Favreau on uh, Disney streaming service when that drops next year. Um, and we, we have a full picture of the cast now. We, previously, we had heard that Pedro Pascal was going to play the lead role. But now we have, we've heard a lot about a lot of supporting actors who are also going to feature. Giancarlo Stanton? Yeah. <laughs> not to be confused with Giancarlo Stanton, of course, Ben Bateman. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito, yes, is, is one of these actors. Gina Carano, uh, Nick Nolte, Car- the great Carl Weathers, and most uh, strangely of all to me, v- Werner Herzog um, is going to feature in this uh, television show. I don't know. A lot of very old people I know, in yeah. this television show. It, I'd be interested to see what sort of roles that, that they play. haven't necessarily associated with them, with people who might be good in the Star Wars universe, but I could see Werner Herzog as a villain. Certainly he did it in uh, Jack Reacher. Um, yeah, so like the, the pretty effectively the starring roles in this, to my understanding, according to like all these news announcements that I've seen, are Pedro Pascal, yeah, who sounds like he's going to be playing the lead role, right. whatever that is, and then alongside Gina Carano mm-hmm. and Nick Nolte is the other starring. So yeah. I imagine if I'm just like whiteboarding this in my own head, right? Nick Nolte is going to be some sort of like mentor figure for he's going to be the Obi Wan, Pedro yeah. Pascal, <laughs> and Gina Carano is going to be the love interest. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I mean you're probably right though, to be honest with you. Um, okay, in other news. Um, Netflix has announced that uh, a movie that you saw but I haven't seen yet, To All the Boys I Loved Before, um, is getting a sequel. Uh, not not really surprised to see that. It was a huge hit. A lot of people were talking about it when it came out. I, I still need to catch up with it. Um, I mean, you like Set It Up. I think you'll like this movie. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, do you have any thoughts about, you know, the fact that this is getting a sequel? I'm sure you'll watch it, right? I mean, probably. I didn't... I mean, I thought... To all the boys I loved before was fine. It was fine. It yeah. was fine. Like uh-huh. it was a good Netflix rom com. It was the it was the year of the Netflix rom com. Yeah, essentially, I think. And uh, I, I ba- basically, all I have to say is like, I'll watch it. I don't know why it needs a sequel, but I mean, cool. Like, it, yeah. like people people will see, people will watch it. It's like the it's like the perfect target demographic I think on Netflix for most of the people who are on there. Like, ever, like it appeals to most people. I think. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, I th- I think it's it'll be a big hit. Not surprised again to see them announce it so soon after the first one coming out. Okay, final item uh, for the day. We have a rest in peace for uh, Penny Marshall, the great director of, you know, some 80s and 90s classics, uh, you know, Big, A League of Their Own, uh, a few others. Um, she, she's certainly a well-known name uh, in the world of particularly comedy direction, you know, worked with Tom Hanks um, several times. Uh, and seems like, you know, a, a pretty significant loss, even though she hadn't directed a movie in a while. So, yeah. Um, that should just about do it for this week's episode. Uh, Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? At uh, Shelton2013. Again, <coughs> trying to trying to pick up my tweets a little bit more. I've been tweeting a little more over the holidays, yeah. but I hope to continue that into the new year. I don't know. I'll go so far to say it's my New Year's resolution, but we'll and, see. And you can find me at Scarvy Dent. Uh, we hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support us, 
don't forget about our Patreon page, but if you choose not to support our Patreon, that's okay too. We would still love it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which the hosts of Purely Nostalgia will join us to count down our top 10 movies of 2018. For now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.